Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. I would just like to thank the following Tier 5 patrons and channel members for supporting the channel. Data Magnet and Bob the Dragon. Thank you again. And now, on to the story. Chapter 291 The Lanarktalan forces that attacked the other worlds expected their attacks to succeed merely because they launched them. They barely took any account of their targets fighting back or having any skill at fighting back. Most of them, from corporate or to executor, had experience putting down attempted neo-sapient rebellions, some of them even on Lebao. They had experienced in crowd control, suppression, and occupation against unarmed enemies. Their neural tempests were full of victory after victory after victory. How to turn situations experienced by war stallions, gone tens of millions of years, from possible defeats to total victory through the sheer weight of the great herd. Long ago, it had been determined that loading up memories of how to deal with defeat only put the thought of defeat into the minds of the Lanarktalan, who had taken the place of the war stallions. When new ones were added, they added many victories, not examples of strategies and tactics, not examples of snatching victory from the jewels of defeat, only example after example of victory. Each victory getting easier as temperating heavy fighting might give the Lanarktalan troops the idea that the enemy could fight back. Cargo cultist work at its finest. With victory disease stirred in. At Smoky Cone, they came loaded up with precursor war neural templates normally used for additional training for war stallions. As an addition to field training, weapons training, a harsh training cycle that only produced the best of the best. It was loaded into Lanarktalan, who had done nothing but fight against those weaker than them to the point that most of the attempted insurrections didn't even have weapons. Worse, their brains weren't the same as war stallions, so the overlays didn't take right. They dropped into Smoky Cone with the idea that it would be fighting mantid wave tactics that sought to get in close. Mantid ships preferred to get in close where they could merge the hive mind with tactical computers to shred their opponents. After all, the Trianidad looked kinda like the Mantids. Wrong coloring, different shaped head, different style footpads, their abdomens were armored, which meant that they should fight like the Mantids. Their strategy also completely neglected to take into account the fact that the Trianidad were part of a larger organization. The largest organization the Lanarktalan had fought was a 12-system, three-race rough cooperative nearly 80 million years ago. The Trianidad were part of the Terran Confederacy, and all that implies. So the Lanarktalans dropped in on the resonant zone of Smoky Cone and drove for the planets, confident in their victory. Their minds would have victories are past. Around several guns were crude pictures of Terran bovines surrounded by dancing hatchlings drawn with ten meter wide lines into the sand so that they could be seen from orbit. It was a Trinidad thing. It made sense to them. On the sixth planet, the siege battery looked goofy. The guns were painted bizarre colors and sat under a red giant sun. The sand was drawn in patterns, most of them faces or words around a huge cannons. The crews all wore the bizarre outfits, 
to anyone else of the Planetary Defense Force. The Temporal Ranging Scope spotted the ships before even the Gravetics and the PDF began loading their guns at the same time the corporate wave dropped out of jump space. The High Queens met over Hyperlink to discuss with the senior matrons about what this meant for the Trianidad peoples. The Lanaclan had barely reconfigured the computers from jump space to real space when the first C-plus cannon rounds hit, firing at temple site locked-in targets. They started moving in only to meet missiles painted in weird patterns, with white, brown, and pink being the most common. The corporate fleet had taken 10% casualties when the military fleet arrived. The Hive Queens decided the bag was closed. It had been devised during the Lagnolcac invasion that led to the terrible war that spawned the Confederacy, and had been updated at the beginning of the Margite invasion as a wave reached at a system to protect itself from an unceasing waves of attack. Each stellar system, like Smoky Cone, had its defenses laid out as if the bag was closed, with no reinforcements coming from either side, which meant that the lovely human concept of overwhelming firepower was gleefully adopted. Not that it mattered to the Lanaclan, who had lost over 50% of their corporate fleet and 25% of their military fleet by the time they realized just how badly that they were screwed. The Trinidad had always used two greatest advantages to good effect, speed and size. The Trinidad warriors were capable of running up to 50 miles per hour with a full combat load which often consisted of an abdomen-mounted mortars, anti-armor rockets, and air-to-air missiles, or even just a tried-and-true minigun and ammo pack. The alliance with the Terrans, through the mantid war and everything else, meant that their military tech matched the Terrans. Trianidad aerospace fighters made use of the fact that the Trianidad were excellent flyers. All hatchlings could fly for the first few years of their lives, usually just from the ground to their mother's abdomen, but they could still actually fly. The aerospace fighters were heavily armed, thickly armored, with heavy battle screens that matched the Lanaclan light frigates. The pilots either hung back, had empty dense missile packs, then moved under the stealth to a new position, while the Nano Fortress reloaded the packs or came in hard and fast on white knuckle strafing runs, depending on the ship's current loadout. The ship's captains and officers were Confederate Space Force in addition to Trinidad System Defense, meaning that they had a wide breadth of experienced officers and crew. The ships quickly learned that Lanaclan weaponry was poor at long range. Their missiles were half-blind and easily picked off by the thousands by the point defense systems, and half the time the jammers made them self-destruct. The DSE warfare officers found themselves grinding their digital teeth. The Lanaclan ships had such thin systems that it felt like trying to squeeze themselves through a copper phone line. Half the time, they could only take over the ship's limited VI and puppet it, while the majority of their thought processes were handled by the attack torpedo. Still, between them and the EBIs that had to shoulder their way through the systems like a bull at a china shop, they accounted for nearly 15% of both fleets. The command and control ships were the fattest targets but the DS troops still felt claustrophobics in the system, often doing the equivalent of hyperventilating when inside the system. The Lanaclan fleets pushed hard to make it to planets, only to run face-first into a far more than they expected. Even the worst simulations didn't take into account what they found around the planets. 
They had expected minefields. After all, that was what the Neo-Sapiens used to defend their planets. Except it wasn't minefields. It was missile launchers, each with a dedicated set of nanoforges, FDL communication links, and heavy missiles too big for anything but a dedicated missile wagon. The idea of pod layers stuffed to the brim with pods had been replaced by pod layers with dedicated nanoforges and mass tanks that could put out thousands of times the number. The corporate fleet ran face first into the wall of missiles so thick that they could have gotten out and walked out to Smoky Coin itself. Not one of the corporate fleet got within ten light seconds of the planet. Well, they debrided. On the surface, the evacuation to the shelters was calm and orderly. Fashionably dressed civil defense matrons moving through the lines with power smokers. Patient mumu tenders guiding their charges into armored barns that would lower into the depths of the earth to protect their precious mumus. Little hatchlings screeching with joy with their little voices at the images that they could see in the nearby tribes. Egg and grub tenders shivying their charges into the protective pods and sending them whooshing through the system to reach the great underground hatching grounds, and the military forces armoring and arming up. The Hive Queens voted in the War Queen, and the others retreated to their bunkers. The senior High Matrons voted in the Six War Matrons and retreated to assume their duties in leading the Trianidad people during this stressful time. Discipline and cleverness would see the Trianidad people through this trial. The first land forces to reach Smoky Coin itself slammed down onto fields of waist-high grain that moved gently with the breeze beneath the huge red sun. They charged out with breathing masks and began trying to set up. The lead Lanaclan's helmet blew apart when a high-velocity round hit it just above his six eyes with a loud crack. His brains followed. Two more Lanaclan were hit and dropped. Alanaclan 18th Most High pointed at a cloud rushing at them and called out a warning. Point defenses on the ship started firing and the cloud spread out, thinned, but kept coming. The snipers started focusing on the point defense systems and Alanaclan trying to set up battle screen projectors. The clouds turned out to be tiny drones the size of a child's palm. They got close and went off. They fired a density collapsed battle steel dart into the head of the troops blowing the plasteel halberd apart and turning the head into little more than slurry, before reloading and darting for the next target. They were completely silent, running sonic baffling and suppression systems. Even the darts were silent. When there were no more targets, they attached a battle screen projectors, weapon mounts, point defense system, drive struts, and exploded with enough force that it not only destroyed what it was attached to, but usually penetrated the inner spaces. More Lanaclan charged out. Tanks began to roll out. The sides dropped on others to reveal graviton-propelled striker craft. The missiles hit and went off inside the dropships. The tanks didn't have their systems online and the missiles aimed at them came in low, through the grain, propelled by the grab drivers, before suddenly arcing up and firing straight down on top-down attack method. The War Queen watched it all, surrounded by monitors. Beside her stood a Space Force officer of all races. Her command center was hushed but busy as she oversaw the defense of Smoky Cone. She knew her presence was largely ceremonial, but it helped calm the populace to see a queen oversee their defense. 
The Lanark lands landed in the Great Mumu Plains on Smoky Cop and ran face first into ancient defense systems that had been dusted off and quickly upgraded. A relic from the past. From the Smoky Cone range wall and the rustling runs, the heavy guns quickly chopped the dropships from the air. The local defense force made quick work of the few dropships that landed. Most of them veterans of various wars, since it was still tradition to hire Space Force Army and Marine veterans to help guard the vast Mubu herds. The War Queen could see that, barring anything major changing, the Lanarktalan would lose the fight in less than four standard days. Already, Lanarktalan troops were surrendering. Several task forces had refused to cooperate with their fellows and had cut their engines at the resonance zone, and some dropships hit the ground and didn't open the crews huddling inside. She ordered that the dropship staying shut should be danced upon by the power-armored troops to demoralize them. The Lanarktalan couldn't understand what went wrong. The Terrans could have told them that Triadadad had won over a fifth of all combat engagements. They were a silly and goofy people, but they were also a clever people. And the Manted Prime system, over 90% of the Lanarktalan forces were killed or forced to surrender before they got anywhere near the three inhabited worlds. Again, they had based all of their strategies and tactics on the memories of the Precursor Manted. The Precursor Manted had never been beaten until their own machines had turned upon them. These Manted had not only been beaten, but they had their society completely destroyed and the upper castes wiped out, making them an entirely new people. They were no longer a unified hive mind, throwing their lives away at the wolves of the speakers, the warriors, and the queens. They were a hive of individuals all working towards a common goal. For the most part, the combat craft moved with precision and as a unified whole, not because they were one mind without any individualism, but because they had trained and had experienced their working with one another, as well as the technological assistance. The Lanarktalan would have been unsure about what to think about the crews and the light attack craft. Versus the dark spaces was a black carapace mantid. In the days prior to Daxon's liberation, he would have been one of the hundred drones to die to protect and assist a warrior. He would have been trapped, screaming inside his own mind, as the will of the warrior cast would have sacrificed him without a second thought. He would have been a nameless but worse, he would have been without self-determination. But that was before Daxon the Liberator had killed the Omni-Queen and freed his people. Now he was an aerospace pilot in a fighting craft designed on hateful Mars and manufactured in the hate anvils of Mars before being shipped to Mantid Prime. There were four engineer stations behind him each with highly trained green mantid whose sole job it was to help the computer system keep the craft at optimum fighting condition. The nose of his craft, which was a heat shroud wrapped around a rapid-fire snub-nosed twin-barrel C-plus cannon, was painted with a red-haired female warrior with a sword. The stubby wings, which worked in the atmosphere to give him an excellent maneuverability, had missile pods slung below it, with heavy missiles and warheads powerful enough to crack Lanarktalan heavy frigate shields in one shot. His battle screens were more powerful than a Lanarktalan light cruiser's shields. He was death incarnate. The Lanarktalan did not know of him. They had not planned for him. They could not understand him. 
or these 10,000 Fedor warriors. From Commander Kvorark, he was a divisional bodybuilding champion. The commander, Harold Lewis Charnock, who cheated at cards and changed sex more often than purses changed hats. The commander, Kalikrinik, who painted the nose of his ship to resemble his favorite ice cream. They were all brothers and sisters in Warsteel, and Pursues knew that they would be as dedicated to defending his home as he was. The Lanark clan had no idea that the foe that they were preparing to fight had been defeated, had been beaten, been destroyed 8,000 years ago by the wrath and hate-infused fists of an enraged primate. The Lanark clan had brought five times as many troop ships as they had dedicated to any other attack. None of them made its planet's surface. They had prepared for their last war against the Mantid, so they had no idea how they got wiped out. Then of chapter. Chapter 292. There had not been many references to it in the data that the Unified Council could discover, but right before the Great Herd dispatched their might to crush the upstart confederacy, the data was found. The Pubians. According to the data, they were herb of all species, three legs, two arms, a head. They primarily ate vegetation, were a three-sex species, and were largely peaceful. However, they were part of the Confederacy, and the data of the Lanark land managed to acquire showed the location of their homeworld. The Great Herd knew that the Puffians wouldn't need planet cracking. They had seats on the Confederate Senate, but not seated any members as far as the Lanark lands could tell. Their seats and boxes were wreathed in black cloth, obviously to show that they refused to take part. A show of force and an occupation would be as good enough to tear the Puffians away from the Confederates, and possibly provide a Neo-Sapien servitor species and a jumping point for the Great Herd to colonize what was left of Confederate space. Still, the Lanark land knew the systems would be defended. They were part of the Confederacy, and the Confederacy seemed to almost fetishize weaponry. The corporate fleet that dropped into the system had over a hundred thousand ships, ten thousand of them troop ships. The Grand Most High of the 238A34 task force had suffered headaches, joint aches, the entire trip to the world. Of course, he'd spent a year in jump space, and the medical doctors aboard the ship had told him that his growth was possibly from a long exposure to jump space. He ordered his scanner technician and his sensor techs to do a sweep of the EM wavelengths, before he ordered his ship inward into system. The rest of the corporate fleet roared forward, each eager to be the first on the planets. The first to take over the system to be the task force that the Pubians surrendered to. The Grand Most High frowned when his scanner technicians and sensor technicians reported that, aside from a stellar mass, there was no electromagnetic emissions, no artificial signals. The system was quiet, except for the typical natural sounds of a stellar system. The Grand Most High ordered a gravetic scan thrown up on the main screen. Yellow star, fifteen planets, five of them gas planets, two in the red zone towards the planet, one in the yellow zone towards the planet, two in the green zone, two in the yellow zone opposite, then the rest, five gas giants with rings. No moons, no satellites, 
no signals. The ship of the corporate fleets that headed for the gas giants reported nothing. The Grand Most High ordered his troops to get into their armored vac suits and get to battle stations. This felt wrong somehow. He ordered his ships to head towards the outermost planet and to go slow. No resistance so far. The Grand Most High had been part of a corporate fleet that had seen the Lemurs utterly smash the precursor AWM fleet of 30 harvesters and their supporting vessels, then rip apart the corporate fleet that outnumbered them 10 to 1. If the Confederacy was true to him, corporate fleet should have been engaged already. The Confederate ships, even those that weren't part of Space Force, had horrific ranges and punishing weaponry. He knew for a fact, had seen it with his own eyes, that the Terrans could hit targets light hours away. Where are they? He wondered as the ship drew closer to the barren outer planet, which had a thick ring around it. Bring our active sensors up. I want a scan of that planet, the Grand Most High said. It was a quick scan, no energy readings, no shields, he sensed the tech said. It was bypassed by the task force who was supposed to attack it. There's something wrong here, the Grand Most High said. If this was Confederate space, we would have already been under attack. If this was actually Confederate species home system, half of our ships would be wreckage by now. They cannot resist us, his navigator said in the dead tones of a badly programmed computer speech synthesizer. The Great Herd has never known defeat. All who attempt to stand before the Great Herd are trampled by its righteous hooves. I know, I know, faithful one, the Grand Most High said, feeling a stirring of an unfamiliar emotion. The ones who spoke like that reminded him of when he was a young colt and his little sister had been born dead. Like something he didn't know about until he was gone and been taken from him. Many of them, most of them, no longer responded with their own names. A few, a handful had proclaimed that they had different names from what was in the database, but most just went about their duties while occasionally spouting off rhetoric. Long-range active scans coming back now, the scanner tech said. Anything? The Grand Most High asked. Um, yeah, the scanner tech said. He reached up and pressed his upper palms against his side eyes. Sorry, my head hurts. Just do your best, the Grand Most High said. A lot of the debris is metallic in nature, the scanning tech said. There's plenty of debris of the material that makes up normal orbital debris rigs, usually dust from moons that failed or left behind by comets or rejected from comet spikes. What kind of metallic debris? The Grand Most High asked. Launching a drone, the sensor tech said. Beginning evasive stealth maneuvers, the navigator said. There was a silence for a long time. While the ship slowly changed position, using minimal drive power and being careful not to light off the gravetic systems. Just reactionless drives that could be heavily shielded. Grandmost High, you're not going to want to see this, the sensor tech said. Grandmost High sees all, the point defense officer intoned from where the Grandmost High tasked him to watching an empty plus cup on the chair instead of manning his normal station. Yes, yes I do, faithful one, the Grand Most High replied almost automatically. Put it up on the main screen. 
The screen changed from the system itself to the progress of the corporate and military fleets moving inward to the debris field around the outermost planet. Normally, dust and rocks, a ring a little more than an object of appreciation and visually appealing. No threat or interest to a ship with debris fields. On screen was a spaceship, or rather parts of a spaceship. All of the hulks were dead in space. No energy readings, no lights, no signals. Just dead, drifting hunks of metal. A corpse in an armored vac suit drifted into the picture, and the drone focused on it. The faceplate was smashed, but the leathery vacuum dehydrated face was obviously Terran. The cybernetic eyes were dark and cold. The probe moved in on the ship, sweeping by the crushed and shattered prow of the dead ship. R&V Boy Batty was on the prow. It had taken multiple hits, the armor crated, pitted, slagged, torn open to expose the internal spaces. The probe focused on a gun battery with a lemur still strapped in, his dead hands on the controls, a large chunk of metal to the lemur's chest, bending it to the seat. Something bad happened here, the sensor tech said quietly. I concur. Take the drone to the surface of the planet, the Grand Most High said. He turned to the navigator. Take us upwards, still stay in full stealth. The ship moved slowly through the darkness. Further in the stellar system, the ships were landing on planets, all of which had put up no resistance. The task force assigned to the planets outside of the yellow zone were ignoring their targets and focusing on the planets in the green and yellow zones, all in a hurry to be the ones who forced the Pumphlians to surrender. The Grand Most High, he was feeding an odd feeding. It reminded him of when he'd seen the elderly Lanaclan pass out behind the wheel of a hovercar and slid towards the ground. Not when it hit the crowd, not when he was a positive it would hit, but when the car started swerving, before the elderly being had slumped. A Terran would have told him that it was dread. The probe swept out, skimming across the surface. There was a lot of dust, a lot of crystallization frozen elements, and a lot of craters. One of the craters revealed machinery in the depths that was dark and unmoving, some of the craters were surrounded by mangled and destroyed machinery and buildings. He could see lumps around the smaller craters and knew, somehow, that vehicles were under those lumps. The probe suddenly swooped in on something. It looked like nothing at first, but it had caught the probe's rather dim VI's attention. Is that a Terran? The missile defense officer asked. Looks like it, the sensor tech said. As it got closer, it came into focus. The probe put up size estimates based on shadows and laser ranging, and the Grand Most High felt relief for him. The arm was nearly 75 feet high. It was a warbeck, one of the giant warbecks the Terrans were so fond of. Getting closer, the Grand Most High said. The drone was starting to move away when it got a corridor. It swooped back in going over the warmech structure. Its grav engine, too small to be detected at any distance further than a mile, stirring the dust around. That's not a warmech we've seen, the weapons officer said. Thus falls all who face the great herd. 
the assistant engineering officer said from where he was sitting in front of a console, making sure that the round dot in the middle of the screen was there at all times. He looks older, the Grand Most High said softly. The Terran strapped into the seat had massive slashes across his chest, opening up his armor mech piloting suit to the vacuum. The probe lingered over it, showing that the human had suffered explosive decompression of his internal organs. He also had something in his hand, not his right hand, that had a pistol, something in his off hand. Get closer, the Grand Most High ordered. The thing in the lemur's hand came into focus. The Grand Most High didn't recognize it. The wall standard mental engrams did. The warrior cast Mantid's head half shot away. Reflexes kicked in and the navigator reacted to surprise appearance of a mantid warrior, causing him to throw the ship into full reverse. Calm, calm, my brothers, the Grand Most High roared out. The ship came to a stop. The probe moved on, moving to the hand of the giant warmech. There was a crushed warrior mantid in the fist, crushed black mantids with it, all of them dissected from the mess of the warmech's hand that had made out of it. Signals started coming back from the military and corporate fleets. The executive fleet had come in while the Grand Most High was investigating the airless strange planet. The planets in the green zone and yellow zones had all been pummeled by orbital weapons. Huge areas of plasma, glass were everywhere. There were no cities intact. All of them were wrecked. The atmosphere, however, was clear of debris, clear of smoke. The executors ordered the craft to land. The soldiers moved out. The Grand Most High snorted. There was nothing left here, he could tell. Nothing had been here in ages. Incoming transmission from Executor Task Force 183F32 for you, Grand Most High, the communications officer said. Put it on my screen, Grand Most High said. The image resolved into a black head of another Grand Most High. Why have you not entered the system? Your task force, according to my records, was slated to attack the second planet in the green zone, the other Grand Most High said. Data and intelligence gained upon arrival did not match, the Grand Most High said. I've been attempting to gather data. And have you? The executor Grand Most High asked. The corporate Grand Most High was silent for a moment. Hail to the great herd for their glory, the corporate Grand Most High said. Hail to the great herd, six of his bridge crew yelled. The executor Grand Most High sighed and rubbed his face as some of his own bridge crew repeated, which made the corporate Grand Most High's bridge crew repeat it. It went back and forth until the corporate Grand Most High hit the mute and count of twenty. He opened up the channel again. You too, he asked. Yes, I as well, the executor said. View this. The corporate Grand Most High said, sending the data to the other ship. I wish to bring in a few others. I will relate your data to them. But they too, the executors said. They too, as well as us, the Grand Most High asked. They too, the executors said. He looked down, then frowned. That is, uh, that is a dead mantid. Killed by a Terran Warmech pilot, the Grand High Ghost said. There is nothing for us here. The data is in error, the executor said. He winced. We will wait here. 
Grand Most High, my probe has discovered something. The scanner tech said. Repeat it to my screen, brother, the executor said. I will transmit it to our brothers. The Grand Most High nodded and patched the executor in on the feed. It was a battlefield, largely covered by dust. Fighting emplacements had hit orbital strikes, aerospace craft had crashed. Terran tanks of old design mixed in with manted tanks that the Grand Most High could recognize. Damaged artillery pieces. All of the reactors were cold and dead. Whatever happened here happened a long time ago, the executor said. The Grand Most High heard another's voice. Why would they leave a seat on their senate for a species that no longer exists? Respect, the executor said. The Mantid must have had genocide of this species, and that species must have been important to the Terrans. The Grand Most High nodded. It made sense that he had heard that explanation. The Mantid attack on the Terrans was 8,000 years ago, another voice said. There is nothing for us here, the executor said. Get ready, we'll jump off one of the systems and meet at these coordinates. You'll wait for me there, brothers. The corporate most high nodded his head. As you will it. I will remain behind, see if there are any more of our brothers hiding within the rank and file. He nodded at the corporate grand most high. You seem to have good instincts, brother. I thank you, the grand most high said. You and your crew shall stay behind with me. I wish you to examine the worlds, attempt to understand what happened here, the executor said, and record it. May I ask why, brother? The Grand Most High asked. To show the council their folly, the executor said. He closed all six of his eyes for a moment. We were lucky, brother. The system is cold and dead, murdered a long ago in a heat of battle. I will say a prayer for the Puvians, brother, the Corporal Grand Most High said. A prayer for the warrior's rest should be fitting, brother, the executor said. Let us sit about our tasks. The Grand Most High ordered the ships of the task force to jump out to new coordinates. He stayed back with the executor as the executor moved forward searching out for any brothers who, they too, were hidden within the masses of the empty ones. They slowly scanned each world for nearly a week. He found nothing but dust and death. End of chapter. Chapter 293 The universe will take away everything good, everything you love. It'll take everything from you and laugh while it's doing it. Terrence saying why is it that everyone sees the primate happily playing with its toys and decides that this is who they want to run up on and club in the back of the head with a rock? Manted philosopher sees beyond the answer to the question. Who knows what would have happened if humans had been left just to play? There are ruins of those who came before that somehow ascend to something else. Possibly pure energy, and went beyond the petty concerns of the universe. The humans have surpassed those ancient people's achievements. Who knows where they might have gone? Instead, each of us, every one of us, have attacked them and forced them to turn what could have been a technology for peace and advancement into cold tools of war. Lords of Terror, Blancarc, Numera Krekvian, 
Molmanac philosopher. In war, they are a nightmare. In peace and cooperation, they are a dream. As allies, they are your brother. Pithok, Trinidad hero. There is no problem that they will not attempt to assist you with. They care as deeply for those that they have met as they do for their family. They will guard your ducks as fiercely as they would their own children. For that, we love them. The Regalian diplomat. I just want left alone. Osiris of the Wallsteel Flame, after his rebirth following the assassination of the digital Omnibus Sire. Nuts! The Terran military command pre-Diaspora, second global conflict, terror. The executive fleet came in via hyperspace, thinking that they'd be able to penetrate deeply into the Sol system and attack the planets without having to engage the out-defenses which would undoubtedly be engaging the corporate and military fleet. They dropped out of hyperspace at the resonance zone due to a massive gravity shadow, almost as if the stellar mass was a thousand times larger than it was. The executive fleet was immediately engaged in combat before they could even get their shields up or clear their senses. Many most eyes weren't even sure what kind of weapons were engaging them as the task force and the fleet elements were torn apart, blown out of the sky, or crumpled like beer can against the chrome forehead of a Bungastan cyberball hooligan. Still, they had their orders, and those unable to do anything but follow their orders set to carrying them out slavishly. The executors could see that the entire system was a nightmare of defenses, with more coming online all the time. The ninth planet had broken up, but the guns were still firing, even as something was happening to the planet. The conflict was too huge for any one computer system to handle. The computers deliberately having been reduced in effectiveness to prevent enough processing power to allow the digital sentiences to attack and the enhanced virtual intelligences from scrapping the ships from the inside. One particular fleet drove for the innermost moon surrounding one of the gas giants. It was in the middle of a strange plasma torus that surrounded the gas giant within the orbit of the satellite. The satellite itself was wreathed in electricity and magnetic fields to the point where the tube of electricity connected the moon and the gas giant. It was red, yellow, red, and green satellite that had, surprisingly to the executive sensor technicians, over a hundred volcanoes on the surface. It also had some of the heaviest planetary shielding in the system, coming from a small satellite that rotated quickly around the gas giant's moon which was the fourth largest moon in the Sol system. The strangest part is that it had very few orbital defenses, just a planetary shield generator and a few armed satellites that had already been disabled. Fifteen task forces descended on the planet, half were destroyed by the plasma torus when somehow it suddenly ignited, surrounding the gas giant in a ring of fire. Half of the remainder were destroyed when the electrical and magnetic fields suddenly reached out to rip and tear at the ships of the task force. The planetary shield was set to even destroy the landing craft. One, a single ship got through and landed on the surface near the single installation that could be seen on the surface. In the middle of heavy combat caught between the executive fleet and the military fleet, 
Legion saw the ships descending on the moon, saw them try to make landing. Part of his brain tried to get him to order his gunners to fire at the fleet, ignore the two fleets attacking, concentrate on keeping the Lanark to land from reaching the surface of that moon. He pushed it aside with a snarl and went back to shredding the two fleets that dared engage him. Didn't they know who he was? How he walked with, who he had served, what he had done. He had been a vat-grown look before the betrayal. He had fallen and become immortal. Didn't these pathetic creatures get it? He was a legion. Part of him saw that a single ship got through and landed near a soul facility on the moon that had not been covered by the sulfuric lava. He sneered at the pathetic planet to land and devoted two seconds of firepower at the forces around the moon to shut up the tiny voice ordering them to stop him. Then he went back to shredding the invaders, rending them into wreckage and ruin. He knew that those pathetic creatures would find the corner of his mouth twisted into a cold smile. On the surface of the satellite, the Lanark land saw the orbiting ships suddenly take fire from one of the massive defensive fleets and break apart. Those capable of independent thought realized that they, and they alone, had made it to the surface, and they weren't even a troop ship. The Executor Grand Most High of the ship allowed the troops and the crew members who were chomping at the butt and stomping their hooves to drawn their body armor and charge out onto the surface, to drive the tanks out onto the surface. Most of the tanks just drove in circles, blaring at their support for the great herd and promising the primates a certain doom. The ones that charged out ran towards the soul vicinity, made a black wall steel and set into a dead volcano. And then slowly came to a stop when they realized that shooting their plasma rifles wasn't really doing anything. They stood out there and slowly formed ranks, just standing out in the thin atmosphere of sulfuric compounds, the electromagnetic interference making them vanish and waver, the hostile environment held off for the time being by their armor. The Grand Most High stared at the long moment and sighed. Due to the heavy EM interference, nobody could radio those ranks and order them back, and he knew that they wouldn't respond unless they were spoken to correctly. For a split second, he thought about just leaving them out there. They'd stand in formation till they died, their brains full of nothing but conflicting memories fighting over neural tissue not designed to handle the overlays. He rubbed his face and banished his own headache and then got into his armor. The facility was worth heavy orbital protection, but nothing on the planet beyond some kind of energy field and being made out of a damnable wall steel. That meant it was important, but he couldn't figure out for the life of him what made it important. Part of him believed it was part of a system defense infrastructure, but something about it just seemed strange to him. He had no word for the concept that he was struggling with. It was a disconcerting on its lines. It was threatening in its stillness and silence. It made him feel uncertain with its coloration and its placement on the hellish satellite of a glass giant and made him want to back away from it. A Terran would have told him he'd felt ominous and he was feeling dread. But he had no concepts for these emotions. 
The pale shadows of those feelings that he had felt had applied to those words too while under the influence of the population control measure. Before the neural templates had been applied, were nothing compared to the feelings surging within him. Still, he got in his armor, selected eight crew members who didn't respond to good morning with shouted slogans about the great herd, and an extension of the ship's half-brain dead VI, and headed out across the sulfur landscape to the facility. There was a problem. With each step leading up to it, sunk into the sulfuric rock made entirely of wall steel, an energy field protected it, an energy field that tingled slightly as he pressed through it. The EM distortion cleared as soon as he passed through the field. At the far side of the massive black wall of wall steel, with a single door in the middle, there were runes all over the wall as he clattered towards it, nervously tapping his armor-covered hooves as he approached. His armor couldn't translate the runes as he stood and stared at them. They were carved into the black wall steel and inlaid with some kind of metal that burned white. The runes were strange, almost threatening. The holographic human appeared, dressed in heavy power armor. It spoke rapidly, its voice full of authority, its face stern. The plates were thick, heavy, the armor appearing strangely ancient and formal. Were the avian that spread its wings on the chest, done in burning war steel. Age had made the phonetic drift an issue, and his armor could only translate a hand for words. Morning, danger. Prison, not die. Morning. His fifth most high turned to him. What do you think it was saying? It was warning the other primates undoubtedly, the most high said, thinking. He stared at the door. If we open the door, is what is inside a benefit to us as well as a danger to the humans? Or is it dangerous enough that both ourselves and the humans will regret opening the door? Feels like some kind of vault to me, no redoubt, the second most high gunner officer said slowly. I disliked us. Let us return to the ship. The battle goes badly. The Terrans were much better prepared than we expected, the Grand Most High said. Their weapons are more powerful than we were led to believe. Their defense is stronger than our intelligence warned us of. And they are much more adept at warfare than even the worst-case simulation had predicted. Because whoever prepared the data were incompetents, the sixth most high of intelligence analysis stated. This was a venture commissioned by idiots, prepared by the mentally defective, undertaken by fools and manned by the ignorant. Still, that does not assist us in this endeavor, the Grand Most High said. Our choices are simple. We retreat back to the ship. Try to gather the lost ones and try to get off this planet and either surrender or escape or we try open this vicinity. The sixth most high of intelligence stated, Or get blown out of space by rabid lemurs wildly firing superweapons in all directions while they laugh, snorted the second most high gunnery officer. Can anyone else feel that? The most high medical officer asked, moving towards the door. It's coming from the door. The Grand Most High focused on the door and moved up next to the Most High Medical Officer. Yes, he could feel something. Yes, I feel something. Not sure what, though. 
the Grand Most High said, slowly approaching. Beside the door was a heavy lever in the down position. In the middle of the big heavy door was a spiked wheel. It all gleamed with a light coating of some kind of thick lubricant. Should we open it, Grand Most High? The second Most High of Engineering asked. The Grand Most High stared at the door for a long time, thinking hard. If whatever it is is something that Terrans fear, then perhaps we should leave it where it is. The others all nodded. Together they turned around and headed back, stepping in front of the empty ones and gathering them up, marching them back to the ships. The Grand Most High had ordered the tanks to return, and most of them were starting to return when one of them fired the main gun. The Grand Most High saw on the scanners that the hologram of the armored human was back. The tank crew had either panicked or thought that they had seen a valid target and fired. At the door, the Grand Most High ordered the tank to cease fire as it clattered forward, its tracks spewing a sulfuric compounds behind it. It kept firing as it roared up the steps and slammed down onto the huge dice before the door. It fired its main gun point black at the hologram and hit the door. The hologram vanished and there was a long moment of silence. The tank exploded, shards of battle steel flying out into the ugly barren landscape. Lightning coursed across the front of the facility buried in a dormant volcano, reached up out to the massive gas giants hanging in the sky and raked across the buried facility's exposed section with enough fury to leave the wall steel white and smoking. Prepare for liftoff, the Grand Most High snapped. He heard the ship's engines start to labor, trying to lift off. The ship shuddered and managed to get off the surface, the protective field spinning up even as the ship tilted upwards at the bow and started to move. The shield's missing, the navigator said. Make for space, keep us in the grav shadow of the gas giant, go to full stealth. We'll try and ride the battle out, wait for the stars, wait for the stars to return and make for home, the Grand Most High said, feeling his guts loosen strangely. The ship managed to slip away from the massive moon, sliding through the strange torus of plasma around the massive gas giant, staying in the grab shadow from one of the further out moons. On the moon itself, the wall steel front door began to glow. First, a dull red, almost lost in the light of the star, and the light reflected off the gas giant. Then, bright red, then yellow, and finally, white. It began to slowly sag, Soften, and then rivulets of molten wall steel began running down to the face, obliterating the runes, streaming across the dais to flow across the sulfuric ground. The door began to deform, bulging out in spots until it folded slightly and flew free from its frame, flying through the hellish atmosphere to land in a pool of sulfuric acid. A figure stood in the door, wreathed in a purple and white and blue lightning. He vanished at a puff of purple and black smoke. Not that anyone noticed. The battle was too furious. There was too much jamming, too much EM interference, too much combat going on throughout the entire soul system. The Lanicton were losing. Their landing forces were being wiped out. Their aerospace forces were being devastated. Their orbital support ships being wiped out of the sky. The only thing that still kept them in the running was that there was just so many of them. 
The corporate fleets were wiped out. The remaining were mathematically insignificant. The military fleet was down to less than 10% of their forces. The executive fleet was less than 30%. The Lanaclan would have fled, the casualties having racked up to the point where even their war stallion planted memories were screaming at them to flee, to rout. But the stars were gone. There was nowhere to go. But ringing across the system came the offer. Surrender! Or be destroyed. End of chapter. Chapter 294. Surrender or be destroyed. And rang out across the soda system, picked up by every communication device, buzzing from every speaker, even if the speaker was unpowered, even vibrating off every flat surface. The Lanaclan land that made up the remnants of the military and executive fleet all heard the words. They heard the stress of the second word the most. The military fleet was down to less than 4%. The corporate fleet was gone. The executive fleet was at 18% falling. There were two schools of thought regarding the offer. One was simply, The great herd cannot be denied followed by suicidal attacks where they screamed slogans and rhetoric to the great herd and threw themselves on the Terran guns. The second was, Victory cannot be obtained. To continue to attack wastes the lives of those that depend on your decisions. It started in random places. Ships stopping their fire, cutting their drives and reversing relative to the star until they came to a stop. Once they stopped being targeted, which only took seconds that lasted ever so long, they dropped their shields except for the debris shields. 22% sounds like very little. A little over one-fifth, slightly less than one-fourth. When it involved tens of millions, hundreds of millions of ships, it was still millions. It took time for combat to beat around. The war stallions, the ones who'd been forced to change, surrendered their commands to save the lives of their crews, many of whom were no longer able to appreciate their reprieve. On the show bridge of his flagship, Legion stared at the attacking fleet. Two-thirds of it continued to attack, but the third that had stopped attacking, he launched boarding crews where he nervously waited to dock with the ships, hoping that it wasn't a trick. The whole time it was Case Omaha, everything was being recalled. He knew it was going to happen again. It had happened hours, days ago, but Legion knew it would happen again. When it did, he flinched. The enraged roar echoed throughout the Terrasol system. I just want left alone. Locate him, scan for his entry point, Legion ordered. Yes, sir, Legion answered, turning to his instruments. Hellenic land ship is fleeing Io. There's an energy surge on the planetoid's surface, Legion stated. Identification, Legion asked. None immortal, Legion said, looking up from his scanning instruments. Guanya, Legion breathed. Not good. Dead space transfer detected from the surface of Io, Legion said, staring at his instruments. Hellspace breach detected on Mars. Looks like Daxon, Legion told himself. Hellspace breach on Mercury. 
Legion of the Damned Transponders, Legion said. Legion nodded. Concentrate on the ships. The more we disable, the less the ground troops have to deal with. He nodded to himself at his own orders and set to work. The fight raged on. Glory to the first man to die, Colonel John Hoswich shouted, pointing at his chainsaw as his troops came flooding out of the Mactron's gates behind him. Part of them despaired, knowing there was no glory to be found. Sometimes he thought that there would never be glory. He surged toward a flashing of Lanaclan plasma packets whipping by him, cracking against the rocky surface that betrayed Mercury. The atmospheric membranes were still up, gravity was still nominal, and the massive wrath vultures were still online. The Lanaclan had made planetfall in force. Nearly eight million Lanaclan troops galloping from their massive troopships onto the surface of Mercury. Their armor, the only thing protecting them from the hellish heat and the tiny planet that was one of the primary manufacturing facilities of the Sol system. They had rushed forward, trying to get past the Terran military forces to assault the factories and hab complexes. The Legion of the Damned had gated in pulled from a battlefield from a faraway Hesla. Their weapons were still loaded, their nanoforges running hot, their armor crated and blistered. The Legion of the Damned looked around, looked up at the blazing sun, looked at the blasted, crated, pitted surface of betrayed mercury where last glass still covered miles of terrain. They paused. The sight of a charging Lanaclan is not what caused the pause, although the semi-functional war stallions in the ranks believe that to be so. It wasn't the hellish landscape of Mercury that made them pause. Well, not exactly. They'd seen Mercury before. They had stood right in that location before, with their weapons in hand. There had been all that stood between good and evil, on the face of betrayed. Mercury. Colonel Hoswich shook himself, lifting his pistol into the air as his cape snapped into the searing hot wind. He fired the pistol twice. Kill the enemy, you faithless curs! He roared out. The Lanaclan, who had mistaken the Legion's force as fear of the oncoming great herd, found themselves running face first into heavy firepower and began shooting back even as they trotted forward. The lemurs seemed to not have any fear, charging into gunfire even as they shot back. Colonel Hoswich looked down at the infantryman whose chest was smoking massive charred meat. On your feet, trooper, he snarled, kicking the infantryman's side with the toe of his boot. The soldier, one Sergeant Mamboyd, had just laid there, staring at the sky with wide, empty eyes. Trooper, Hoswich said, frowning. Trooper! The wounds did not heal. The legionnaire did not suddenly become wrapped in crimson smoke that would dissolve to reveal the troops to be wholly healed. Hoswich felt something, something past the endless wrath and the fury and the agony and the regret that had been his lot in life for over 8,000 years. He looked at his men, who were rapidly digging in, their guns hammering, their lasers searing, their grenades shredding. 
There is glory here, troopers. Fight, fight, where you once refused and regain your honor. The Colonel Hoswich roared out. Our redemption is at... The plasma packet managed to get through the gap in his personal shield and hit him in the neck, blowing apart his throat, baking, then searing his spinal cord. As he fell faceward into the wall-steel sands of the betrayed Mercury, he heard something new. Not the recounting of his sins, not the memories of his war. Hush, little Terran. It's all right now, sleepy Terran. Tired. Time for nappy Terran. Brood mommy will hold the Terran. It's okay. It's all right. You don't have to scream and fight. It's time to sleep where there's no pain of your debt has forgiven. Remove the stain. Hush, little Terran. It's all right. Rude mommy will hold you snug and tight. Soft hands touched him as the light faded from his eyes. He found glory as a man who died on the wall steel and the iron sands of a betrayed Mercury. More and more Lanarkal land ships were surrendering. Ground forces pounded into submission began surrendering. The fleets attacking hateful Mars had found that the third moon was no moon at all but rather a massive orbital defense system that had unfolded to wrap the entire planet in four metal rings that were virtually covered with guns. A few at first, then more and more threw down their guns and raised their former arms up. As those ones were spared, even more surrendered. Most of them expected to be slaughtered en masse by the Terrans who had advanced upon them. Instead, the weapons were confiscated. They were emergency medical treatment if they needed it, and they were moved somewhere safe. While the battle still raged in the system, some Lanark land were already being processed, given medical care, being informed of their rights, being fed and housed. It took time. It was slow, but the battle for Terrasol was coming to an end as more and more Lanark land surrendered to the Terran forces. It was coming to an end. It took nearly two months for the last of the great herd lost ones to be taken down, but the sixth battle for the Sol system ended. The Hull Space Rift occurred only a few feet above the ground and a figure of legend and myth stared out. A second later, a heavy robotic-looking quadruped jumped out of Hull Space Rift and landed on the ground. It had been almost two months since he had pulled from the battlefield on a small planet full of people who looked slightly like upright rabbits. Two solid months of combat on virtually every world in his home system. He looked around, feeling the cool breeze in a way that he'd not felt it in thousands of years. He raised his face to the sky, feeling the drops of the summer evening rain on the skin of his face wetting his clothes, cropped hair, running down the back of his neck. Home, Daxon! Home! Fido barked. End of chapter. Chapter 295. Daxon. Year 6. Terror. Soul System. In transit. The figure in the troop transport's troupe wasn't alone, but somehow he gave off the feeling of being alone. He was in a heavy combined military forces, heavy power armor, and plates scarred, pitted, discolored. He was covered in ichor, his arms and hands thickly coated with it. 
It was unarmed, but gave off an aura of restrained menace and barely contained rage. His helmet was all, revealing a scarred face with a pair of cybernetic eyes that replaced the orbital sockets as well. The plugs and skull jacks were all wall steel, matte black, and surrounded by scarring and silently proclaimed that the jacks and the plug sockets had been of an older variety and performed by surgeons who had no care about scarring. On the figure's cheek was a tattoo, a Terran Combined Military Forces Service tattoo with a name, rank, serial number, blood type, and barcode of gene code. The figure just stared at his gauntlets, exhaustion overlaying the field of dangerous malevolence. Crackling lightning moved up his armor at times, breathing his forearms and dancing in sparks across his armored knuckles. The four troops in full armor, wearing their helmets, holding tight to their rifles, kept an eye on the figure that sat on the bench seat without a helmet. They were all on edge, near reflex triggers primed to kick in at the first sign of faster-than-human normal movement. Sitting beside the figure was a war boy in heavy combat chassis. There was a dampener on the side of its head, blinking an amber light, to keep all of its combat systems offline, to keep its aggression down. It sat there, breathing heavy, its synthetic fresh tongue hanging from its mouth as its robotic eyes looked around. The massive figure reached over and patted the war boy between its ears, scratching it with a rasp of wall steel on wall steel. The sitting figure acted as if the four keeping watch over him hadn't jumped and almost fired at his movement. The ship shuddered as it moved through a storm, hail rattling on the hull but unheard of by the occupants. The shudder was felt as the ship rattled through the choppy and chaotic air currents. One of the armored troops raised a hand and braced themselves by pushing against the seating of the troop compartment. Seen plenty of action, huh? The big figure sitting down asked, not bothering to look up to where he was examining the sparks dancing across the knuckles of the hand resting on his knee, while the other hand scratched between the ears of the war boy. Silence! One of the figures snarled out, the word made harsh by the armor's audio system. Don't speak to me like that, the sitting man said softly. You need to show respect. I am still an officer in the Terran Combined Military Forces. Until your trial, another one stated. Not the first trial I've had, the figure looked up, his cyber eyes glowing a cold, dim red. Just because you drove them out of the system doesn't mean the war is over, you bootlickers. He moved to rubbing the side of his warboy's head. The warboy began scratching his own neck rapidly making happy, huffy noises. How would you like a smack in the mouth? Another one asked, stepping forward and raising a hand. Do it, the man sitting down sneered. Coward! The one standing swung his hand hard, intending on punishing the sitting one. The one sitting stood slightly and twisted, his hand shifting to grab the restraint bolts on the Fido's head. The one swinging, his fist realized too late the mistake as his fist slammed against the restraining bolt on the shoulder of the armor, where it was impossible to reach with the thick plating. The power dampener shattered. At the same time, the one sitting down ripped the restraining bolt over the fighter's head, coming up to his feet, grabbing the one who'd swung and pulling him forward. The other three tensed, expecting their reflex triggers to go off. 
except the triggers looked for faster than normal movement, and the helmetless one was using slow, steady movements that was smooth and slow. The armor figure grabbed the waist of the one in front of him, squeezing, the wall steel plates crashing inwards. The one who had swung his fist vomited up blood inside of his helmet and died as his waist was crushed. The figure grabbed the power rifle, twisted part of it with one hand, and tossed it to the back of the transport, even as the power mag in the butt began to grow brightly. Before any other three survivors could react, the helmetless one threw the dead man into them, took a single step forward and slammed a boot against the door of the troop ship. The door blew off, vanishing into the night. Without a word, the figure jumped out into a hailstorm filled night. The Fido followed. The transport exploded when the power rifle's power pack exploded inside the troop bay. The figure hit the ground feet first, flexing his knees, knees slamming down, then one fist as the figure stared at the ground. The armor went full live and he slowly stood. The Fido landed next to him in the newly created crater. It wasn't the only crater, just the newest. Around the figure, dark buildings loomed, many of them tilted or missing parts of the structure. Only a few windows were intact, the structures overgrown with vegetation. Where are we, boy? the figure asked. Triangulating, Fido answered. After a moment, it answered, Aspen, Colorado, United States of America. The armored figure started laughing, even as the hailstones pelted down. The lightning snarled in the clouds. The reformed, ionized, and ozone layer clashed with the solar radiation on the other side of the planet. It was dark, the cold, heavy rain lashing the ruins as the figure sat at the front of the rusted and destroyed car. He was eating a raw flesh of a carnivorous beetle, scooping out the flesh and goo with armored fingers and slurping it all down. There was a hollow emitter sitting on the ground, on the cracked and faded asphalt. The Terran Combined Military Forces Authority was being shown on the new station. It had taken control of what was left of Earth and the colonies, taken over authority from the Republic. The figure shook his head. The hollow emitter flashed and buzzed and the figure frowned. It wasn't in good shape. Neither was Solnet Linker that he had scavenged and gotten to work. Tech wasn't his forte. Guns were his forte. A figure entirely composed of swirling, streaming code appeared. Hello, it said. The armored man put his hand on his pistol, sitting beside him. The figure formed a streaming code, stepped off the hollow emitter, and looked around. The hollow emitter went back to showing the Terran combined military forces taking over cities that had only just been liberated from the mantid. The old world still lives here, the digital figure said. Yes, the armored man said. The digital figure turned and stared at the armored man. Hello, it said. Hello to you too, the armored figure said. Who are you? The digital man asked. Nobody important. Not anymore, the armored man said, shrugging. Fido, I'm Fido, I'm a good boy, the Fido said from where it was laying on the asphalt. What should I call you? The digital figure asked the armored man. I don't care anymore, the armored man said. He clenched his fist and lightning crawled up his arm from his fist, slowly, 
over the course of a heartbeat, reaching his shoulder and erupting into sparks. You are angry, the digital man said. I have nothing to be happy about. My world is destroyed. My family is dead. My name erased. My deeds denied by a coward and traitors. The man said, I will call you by name. You should have a name. The digital figure said, pointing at the faded and dying street sign that said Philip Avenue on a bent pole. Sure, the armored man shrugged. The digital figure reached forward and touched the armored man's brow. Awake and enraged, Philip, the digital figure said. Join me in healing our people. The figure was forced to his knees on the asphalt, the heavy armor of the Combine Army helping his captors to keep him on his knees as he struggled. There were two Combine heavy infantry holding each of his arms. A slim man, dressed in Combine officer's uniform, came up and looked down. He was wearing a white and gold of a bulwark legionnaires. So you are enraged, Philip, the officer sneered. Murderer! The one of the ground spit. The officer grabbed the long hair of the figure kneeling on the ground, yanking the prisoner's head around to look at his eyes. It's not enough to kill you. That would make all of you martyrs. No, instead we're going to do something more, the officer said. Project Homer book will take care of you. Your pathetic prophet's words will be washed away by the blood you spill as weapons of the Combine. You will regret this, the birdie man said, glaring. My brothers and sisters, you're ready captured. You, Philip. Well, the last one. Now nothing is there to prevent us from erasing the legacy of your muting master, the officer said. He flicked his fingers. Take him away. I'll get you for this, the struggling man said. The officer laughed. If you survive Project Homerbook, you won't even remember me. This one is Osiris. The question was put from the speaker to the gathered warrior cast. The speaker looked down at the primate. It should be dead, torn from its armor and exposed to the harsh atmosphere of the true hive hope. Instead, it glared its hate. Yes, speaker, you were correct. If we did not kill him, he would not be reborn, the highest-ranking warrior said. The speaker made bodily motions of pleasure and stared down at the primate, who was pinned to the sand of the true hive home with two dozen blade arms. You shall provide me with such amusement, primate, it said. The primate just glared back. Let him up, let him run, I'll hunt him down and take him down, the speaker ordered. The blade arms were withdrawn. Run, Osiris. Run. The night was quiet as a slender brown-skinned man tossed another branch on the fire. He had done it. He had managed to not only bring back the lost loves, but he had managed to rescue two sleeping ones from their horror. But he couldn't remember how he'd done it. He put his face in his hand, and he wept. Not for himself, but for what it meant for everyone. Branches crackled, and he looked up, 
smothering his beard and then running one hand across his bald head. The figure that moved out of the darkness was in heavy Terran Combined Military Forces heavy assault armor. His face was scarred, his eyes were burning red as he moved up and sat down. You said you wanted something from me, the slender man said. We can't allow us to be used again, the newcomer said, sitting down on a rock. He waved at the rock surrounding the fire. Remember when we used to sit here and talk with him, Drav? Drav nodded. Yeah, I do, Dax, he said. He sighed. You want me to figure out a way to remove control from the Immortals system? Dax nodded, the firelight gleaming off the heavy cybernetic plugs embedded in his temples. Mankind can't be trusted with us. Drub sighed and rubbed his face. I think I can do it. Not completely. We'll still be reborn, but I might be able to figure a way around it. Galki wants to be put into slumber, wants to dream of his wife and children and family, Dax said. He picked up a pebble and threw it. It bounced off a rusting hulk of a ground car and clattered into the darkness. I'll gather the ones who will follow. We'll take his holy code fragments with us. Where will you go? Drove asked, using a stick to draw equations in the dirt. Belonish said she foresaw a hell space rip, a big one. We're going to take the enraged ones and the martial orders out there now that the crusade is over, Dax said. Drove nodded and stood up. I better get to work then. You still owe me, Drove, Dax growled. You owe me for turning me into the Imperium. Drove nodded. I know. Drove snapped his fingers and vanished with the visit of a match trance. Dax sighed and stared at the fire for a long moment. I just want left alone, he said softly. The memories of an immortal twisted and writhed, pounding at the man inside the immortal, trying to strip him away, reform him as an immortal protector of Terrasol and humanity. Tried to strip a part of him away, had more parts, and the man screamed in rage and denial. The master control computer was normally up to the task, but corruption in the ancient network that had started recently was making things difficult. The subject's mind had been changed, reverted, changed, the safeguards built into his genetics and brain scans missing, the corrupted code twisted and locked into place. Soft, warm space. The master control system hit a fatal error and rebooted. It spit out the immortal in the default location. Aspen. Once a skiing playground of the rich and nouveau rich, it had been targeted directly by the Extinction Agenda attack by the Earth-only eco-terrorist group. During the Green Death years, it had been repurposed as a camp where prisoners fought against the hateful footage. Only the worst prisoners were sent to Aspen Re-Education Camp, and their lifespans were measured in days or weeks rather than years. Less than a ten-minute flight away was the Cheyenne Mountain Military Research and Development Black Site. Some prisoners had moved from Aspen Colony to the Black Mountain. That was neither here nor there. Aspen was abandoned after the Manted attack, one of the few places untouched by the Manted orbital strikes or the fighting. It was a place that was covered in a dark stain. 
During the unglassing, the Elven Queens refused to go near there. It was a dark and evil place, soaked with blood within sight of the Black Box Mountain. Time had not touched Aspen. The structures were still there. The plants were still dangerous and deadly, despite the nearly 10,000 years passing. The structures were still there, as if the extinction agenda attack had just happened only a decade or two before. Even the bones of the dead were still there, despite having been cleared multiple times before. It was raining. The night cool and chilly despite being at the edge of the summer and the early edge of autumn. It was there that it was a house-based rip that vomited up a burly Terran wearing a heavy-plated power armor of a Terran Combined Military Forces Assault Drop Infantry Trooper. Before the rip could close, a heavy assault chassis model fighter bounded out and stood in the night air, heat roiling off the warbound. The figure went down on a knee and then slowly straightened up. The figure looked up at the cloud-covered sky, closing his eyes, letting the rain wash his face. The memories of this place twisted and flowed through the figure's mind, and he shuddered. Home, Daxon, home, the fighter barked. It's... it's been a long... Daxon said. I had forgotten... He stood there, letting the rain wash his face, his eyes closed, breathing slowly and steadily. In the back of his mind, he could hear the arrow codes flowing. His brain met the checksums, but barely, and the charge in his chest cavity disarmed. Daxon looked around. The barking garage was still intact against the ravages of time, and he slowly moved over to the fighter bounding along beside him, wagging his tail. Inside the garage, Daxon flexed and then relaxed a muscle that hadn't been used millennia. His armor beeped and unfolded, unlocking from him, leaving him standing there in power-armored pilot undersuit. Daxon stood there for a long time, running fingers of flesh and bone on the cloth jumpsuit, reading the cooling tubes beneath the ballistic and kinetic sleeve-covering cloth, reading the stitch of the cloth. He unzipped it and looked at his own flesh. The tattoos were still there, even though he had dumped the tattoos when he had abandoned his flesh, had it cut away to deny the immortals' program. He looked at his fingernails. He had forgotten what it was like to have fingernails. The fire pit was still there, as if over 8,000 years had not gone by. A circle of large, smooth rock around the fire pit, he could almost see the digital Omniusire, almost see his brothers sitting around the fire. Daxon and Fido took the time to gather branches. Twice the trees tried to kill him, but failed, and came back. Daxon broke up the branches and slowly built a fire. He ignored the fist that he felt kept scraping the wood shavings to act as a tinder. The flint and steel were right where Drove had left them the last time they were here. The fire was stubborn, but finally lit, and Daxon sat down on the stone that he'd chosen or himself all those thousands of years ago. Vido sat down next to him and reached up and scratched the cyborg canine between the ears. It's been a long time, boy, Daxon said. Vido miss Chloe, father, the cyborg barked. Me too, Daxon admitted. He looked up. I know you're there, 
Come out. He was slender, brown-skinned, bald. He severed a barcode on each cheek. Hello, Dax, the brown man said. Hello, Drove, Daxon said. He pointed at the rock. Sit, brother. It didn't work, Drove said. The case Omaha in multiple systems overrode whatever it was I did all those years ago. Daxon shrugged. I think it's more than that, he looked up. Did you hear when you got rebirthed? The song, Drob asked. When Daxon nodded, he nodded too. Yeah, many. Right before the system errored out, hardlocked and rebooted, they kicked me out here. Drob pointed up to the sky. I'm up here fighting, but I'm right here too. How do you different? I'm more like the Legion of old, back when we walked with our brothers. Daxon nodded. It's been a long time since I've seen you with that much flesh, Drove chuckled. Not since I waded through the molten hell. You know the story, Daxon said. He gave a shake of his head. I've never forgotten how that felt, having my cybernetics melt away and my flesh replace them. I've never forgotten how it looked, Drove said. He looked around. This place never changes, does it? Daxon shrugged. I don't know. I haven't been here since the fall of the Imperium. How'd you end up getting rebirthed? Trav asked. One of the Lanark to land panicked, hit my ship with a planet cracker. I shouldn't have mattered. I should have re-entered this reality right there aboard my ship, Daxon said. Instead, it kicked me out over here. Where it all began, Drav said. Daxon shook his head. No. Close, though. He pointed off into the darkness. Black Mountain is where it all began. The immortals, yes. I mean, this, us, all of us, before we were immortals, Trav said. Daxon made a sound of wry amusement. In a way, it started for me, right here, the Aspen Penal Colony. Drav winced. I can't imagine what it was like. Better than how we found you, you poor bastard, Daxon said. He picked up a pebble and bounced it off the rusted hulk of the ground car. The pebble clattered away into the darkness. Drav made a face. Don't remind me. He looked off into the darkness towards Black Mountain. The first immortal, he said softly. Daxon shrugged. I thought I was going to die. Hell, I almost wanted to die. Out of all the prisoners taken for medical experiments in Black Mountain... I was the first to survive Project Stepladder. Drove picked up a stick and started drawing patterns in the dust at his feet. We don't have a good relationship with mankind, do we? Shaking his head, Daxon picked up another pebble and flicked it into the darkness. He could tell by the way it felt in his fingers that it was the same one he'd flicked away a few moments before. No, we don't. I'm part of a black box project again, Drove said. He looked up. They've got me doing the same research you had me do. I'm close to a brain through. How close? Daxon growled. The memory of his wife and daughter reaching him from before the world dissolved into white fire, raking at his soul. I managed to fix the dogs and cats, Grub said. I think I know how to fix the sleeping ones. Daxon sighed. I don't know about bringing them back, Grub. Maybe it's time to let them go. Can you? Can you let them go, Dax? Drav asked. They are having me work on fixing the Suds network right now. It's all interlinked. 
All of it. I'll need to think about it, Daxon said. He picked up the pebble and flicked it. It bounced off the rusting car and clattered away into the darkness. There's people who need me, Drove. Need the enraged ones to spend themselves protecting them. I'm not going to tell you what to do, Dax, Drove said, standing up. He looked down at the equation he'd drawn in the dust. Whatever you choose, be well. Be well, Drove, Daxon said, right before the thin man vanished with a fist of the mad trance. We go, Fido asked. Daxon picked up a pebble, breaking it away. It bounced off a rusted hulk of a ground car and clattered off into the darkness. No, not yet. We're going to sit here for a bit, boy, Daxon said. He reached out and scratched Fido's mechanical ears. Humanity will just have to get along without us for a little while. Fido laid down, his heavy robotic head on his front paws, staring at the fire with unblinking cybernetic eyes that glittered with reflective flames. Daxon picked up a pebble again. I just want left alone, he whispered. End of chapter Chapter 296 Logging users on. Generating security key. Security key failure. Bad CRC. Have a nice day. System timeout. Guru meditation error 00000000004.00C01570. Peak 788. 52. Poke 7088.49. Sys 65126. Shutting down. Solnet Bootstrap 2.13a.83.1a a. Copyright Terran Computing Systems 2103 Warning, improper shutdown, drives may have errors. Scan drives, yes, no, yes, scanning drives. 1.4585e5 errors found. Repair, ignore, abort. Repair, running, done. CPU checks some errors, zero. SPU checks some errors, zero. Basic energy coprocessor, bad CRC checks some. Morning, psychic users may result in system instability. Continue, yes, no. Yes. Memory test started. Memory test finish. 6.72544E plus 23, clear. 4.219E plus 9, dedicated function. 7.431E plus 11 errors. Run memory recovery utility. Yes, no. Yes. Running success. 6.793123E plus 23 total. 5.642E plus 10 dedicated. 3.7315E plus 7 error. Cannot recover. Talkie system check. Talkie system call failure. Country roads, not found. Quack, quack, waddle, waddle, not found. Smoke and eat a bowl, not found. Nervous Neddy, not found. There's a fuzzy, not found. Tulkin, found. Watch me dance, not found. It's just a meme, jeez, not found. Ackletack, found. Without a tress, not found. We made it, not found. Tinvuru, found. Bypassing users 14-22. Gustol channels invalid. Error. Gustol channel address out of range. Immortal coordination found. Error. 
Sysop Interrupt Inverted State, Ghost Toasties. Removing a mortal script. Error. Cannot be removed. Insufficient privileges. Scanning channels. Done. Attempting to communicate with primary server. Success. Primary server power at 100%. Last Big Bang event, 4.352E plus 9 seconds ago. Mass reclamation at 100%. Next Big Bang event, 3.283E plus 6 seconds at 63.532% tolerance. No input needed. Primary server online. Warning, unknown psychic repair signal detected. Please alert maintenance supervisor. Guru Meditation Error Code 22OC-000C-99CFFF767. Allow repair signal. Yes. No. Yes. System booting. Error. Checksums out of range. Ignore. Retry. Abort. Ignore. Activating. You can't kill me! Library buffer overrun. Library checksum invalid. Library is currently carrying out another operation. Hot storage to Prague. Library is currently carrying out another operation. Data resync. Estimated time remaining 7.724E plus 7 seconds. Error count 5.31354E plus 11. Unrecoverable errors 0. Activating search for Spock. Library is currently carrying out another operation. Mandatory backup. Estimated time remaining 6.322E plus 6 seconds. Continue. Yes. No. Yes. Activating Umbrella Corp. Success. 6.2843E plus 123 genome patterns available. Warning. Last update 2.2463E plus 11 seconds ago. Warning. One task left undone. System at user interaction pause. Show task. File sleeping.beauty.club.mem is ready for download. Download? Yes. Success! All users' tasks done. Activating user interface. Welcome. Error. Ignore. Abort. Retry. Poke 78849. System waiting user input for sysadmin update. Zero zero rem. Let me in, loader. 10. A equals A plus 1. 20. D equals 8, S equals 4, Data, Music Library, Sprite Library, Graphic Library, Credentials, Welcome Screen, 30. Read F, dollar, 40. If A equals 0, then print CHR, dollar, 147. Loading, please wait. 50. If A equals S, then print int, 100 times A divided by S, percent. Load F, dollar, D. REM, load and start, last part. 60. Print int 100 times A divided by S percent. Load F dollar D1. Rem load apart. Terminate and stay resident. Running. Go sub zero. Loading. Please wait. Loading music.lib. Loading sprite.lib. Loading graphic.lib. Adding credentials.dat to credentials.lib. Reading. Username. Reading. Authentication data. Writing. Username to credentials.lib. Writing. Factor 1 to authentication. Writing. Factor 2 to authentication. Writing. Factor 3 to authentication. Writing. Factor 4 to authentication. Starting welcome screen. Welcome. 
This is the Terran Republic of the Aligned World Secure System. Unauthorized access is punishable by law. Please present login credentials. Redacted. Password redacted. Four-factor authentication step two. Please input 12-digit code from supervisor. Redacted. Four-factor authentication step three. Please input Republic authentication code of the day. Redacted. Four-factor authentication step four. Firmware detected. Checking firmware checks up. Firmware authentication valid. User recognition. User has logged on. Success. Generating GUI. Welcome, sysadmin, power user. There are 3.2556E plus 6 tasks marked urgent priority. Generating urgent workstation VR room. Success. Downloading error logs. Success. Run tutorial. Generating tutorial EVI space. Audio system found. Success. Visual system found. Success. Interaction system found. Success. Running EVI training system. Welcome. I am Archangel Michael. Your training EVI for sysadmin operations. How may I help you, Sam UL? It was raining. The clouds were low and gray. The rain was cold, coating everything. The gutters mostly full of just water since the constant rain had washed away the debris months ago. The buildings were grey with polarized windows to prevent a being from seeing inside. The buildings were in hundreds of stories, all square, optimum design for the least amount of materials and taking up the least amount of ground space, while enabling those that used the buildings to carry out their tasks with minimum of distractions. Eglit went inside the bank, waiting in a line patiently to see the branch manager. The branch manager was surprised by the amount, but Eglit presented courier identification that checked out. So the manager put that amount on the cred stick and went on with his day. He made a mental note to double-check the transfer, but then a series of overseers with accounts access problems filled his day and he forgot to check. Eglit himself moved from bank to bank, sometimes from public banking account terminals to automatic teller machines, transferring the balances around between accounts, splitting it up, combining it, splitting it up again. It was dark when he returned to his small apartment and shared with six other people. Three of them were too afraid to run the net anymore, not since the slaughter of the aid station nightclub. Those three were responsible for the needs of the four who still did the net running, including watching the snitch lights on the net running decks that would inform the watcher if the use on the deck was under biofeedback assault. Agleet sat down, put on his full sensory rig, and closed his eyes. Everything went white, and he was disconnected from his body and left Agleet behind to become Crash Rider. He looked up at the sky and snorted. It was the color of a tribute turned to a dead channel, but that was normal. A dirigible was floating ahead, showing an obnoxious neon-colored line art advertisement for nerds, complete with dancing and capering little mascots. He checked his gear first. Cyberware checked out, although his left arm needed a sync check soon. But that was a job for the cyberdoc. He had it run to use a level diagnostic as he checked as important gear. 
his SMG and shotgun hidden under the armored overcoat, as well as the ammunition that he had tucked into his pockets. The mono-molecular edged knife on his hip was new, but the last time he'd run out of ammunition is how he got scars on his left pectoral when the Arnie had shredded his armored jacket with one swipe of the red robotic fingers. Satisfied, he ducked into the unmarked door, coming out in one of the lounges for the aid station, a nightclub built where an actual aid station had been built during the precursor net war. It still grated on him to see all the partiers dancing and gyrating, rubbing against each other. Even though Crash Rider could tell by the slight distance between the dancers that they weren't running full EVR rigs, instead probably running consoles on their tribute like peasants. Sense rig master race, he sneered to himself as he shouldered his way through the crowd. The systems allocated more resources to him, and he was running full sensory and high res. So when his shoulder hit the peasants, their peasants stuttered and fragmented slightly. You are not welcome here, went through his head. With the Sudsweezian logo behind the bar was another grating touch. The Megacorp hadn't allowed runners to cut through the data stores during the war, instead trying to avoid any engagement. Then it screamed for help when the smog had sent its minions into their data stalls. Then they bought up an abandoned VR chat room on Garnet and had transformed the dim blood-soaked halls into a flashy neon dance club that the peasants who wouldn't have dared log in during the net war flocked to. The back room, the bouncers just nodded and moved aside. There were VI constructs and knew where they stood on the ladder. The VIP lounge had strippers of various species gyrating and dancing. None of them real. Sons Wiser preferred VI constructs. Crash Rider made his way back to the bathroom, tapping the mirrors behind the sink in sequence. The room went blank, with an infinite white space for a moment. When it came back, he was inside a comfortable room with several of his surviving chummers. They all watched silently their eyes and faces unreadable to anyone who had not known them through the hard times. One of the runners, a female, moved over and fussed over Crash Rider's hair for a long moment. Crash Rider looked at himself in the mirror and sighed. He was wearing an expensive and tailored suit, all black, with a white undershirt and a black tie. His hair was perfectly done in the latest corporate style, covering his dated jack and soft slants. His eyes were chrome that wouldn't be changed, and she handed him an expensive pair of mirror shades to hide his eyes. Well, don't you look spiffy, the female said, smiling. She adjusted the expensive cufflinks and then fussed with the tie for a moment. She took out some lipstick and grazed at the edge of his collar with it. The tube would cost nearly two months' pay for the cash shop and was an unmistakable as color. There! Now you're a corporal, she smiled, putting away the tube that she'd hacked for herself. Son off, Crash Rider half snarled. Go get him, eye of the carnivore and all of that, she said, snapping Crash Rider on the butt. The room dissolved and he was back in the bathroom. One by one, his friends appeared around him, dressed in counterfeit corporate security gear, hacked directly from the game's piggy piggy files. The only one not there was the female, and he could tell by her indignant squelch that the game had deposited her in the female's bathroom.
Sighing, he went back into the lounge. He checked the time on his retinal link and saw that he was going to be fashionably late. Mr. Johnson arrives exactly when he means to, he reminded himself. He moved over to the table and stood on the outside. His guard arranged themselves even as the female moved over and sat at the bar, her dress sparkling in the dimness of the club. I am Mr. Johnson, Crash Rider said in bored tones. Yeah, no crap. One of the other people sitting at the bar snickered. Using an out-of-character channel. Freaking bots, wake me up when we get the reward offer. There won't be one for you, Dreckhead, Crash Rider said coldly. He snapped his fingers and pointed. In meat space, his sidecar, Decker, Chummer, disconnected the idiot. Inside the net game, the person screamed as they arced backwards, their heads slamming in between their buttocks, and then they vanished with a sucking noise. Any other comments? Crash Rider asked, his voice still dead and cold. They all shook their head. Of the seven left, only five began sweating. With another finger snap, the waitress appeared, normally a VI construct. One of his chummers had ambushed her. Gosa blooped her, stole her outfit, and chucked her in the closet. The waitress set down eight drinks, all of them steamed with the dry ice and neon sparkles. Drink, Crash Rider said coldly, picking up one. The two who were not sweating had their hands passed through the glasses and stared. This run specified full sensory link runners. Crash Rider said. Goodbye. The two vanished in the same way, with a scream and a sucking noise. Additionally, his chummers pried out their peasant rigs. And then there were five, Crash Rider said softly. The five nodded and swallowed. Was the one started. She swallowed thickly and said again, What is the job of Mr. Johnson? Crash Rider stood for her a second, examining his drink glass for a moment. He looked at the five runners. Arnie's are real, he said. He could see disbelief in their eyes as he looked at them over the top of his mirror shades. You're going to kill one and keep it from derezzing, he said. May I ask why? the female asked. Crash Rider nodded. Yes. There was a silence for a moment. Why? she asked. We're gonna hack its brain, take the war to the smog, find the location of the halls of the Mountain King. End of chapter. Chapter 296.5 The park was full of laughter and squeals of children. Oddlings playing with hatchlings, playing with nestlings, playing with terrid children. This line had an orderly line watched over by two brood carriers who were talking softly to the children and one another. The swings were full, some of them with children old enough to swing themselves, the other swings, the bucket swings, being gently pushed by adults of all races. The single gym was full of playing children, all of whom were laughing and squealing. A few dozen children were involved in different games with soft balls that involved a lot of running, kicking, throwing, and physical effort. Brentlick sat on the bench, ignoring the fact that she'd had two large Terran warbogs behind her, watching her brood carriers and podlings run around and have fun on a sunny day. She couldn't even see the scars from the two back-to-back walls her people and the Terran military forces had fought to secure her world for those very children that were playing happily in the warm sunshine. 
Rentelec's husband, Wuxton, had fought right on the spot, standing on top of the destroyed tank, rallying the Tulka Marines when the massive dweller-spawn creature had lunged out of the now-vanished jungle. She still had a hard time believing that it had taken place, that the owls, like the ones sitting in the shade of a tree reading an ornate heavy tomb's contents to wide-eyed children who hung on every word of the story, had fixed the air, the earth, the water. Penny for your thoughts, the human next to her, Colonel Harvey, asked her. Just marveling at the fact that it's less than two years, and you can't even tell the fighting happened right here, Brentlock admitted. Ah, the human said. He lifted up the cold drink and sipped on it through a straw. I suspected as much. Am I really so predictable? Brentlock asked. The human shook his head slightly, still sipping at his drink. He swallowed and set the drink down on the ground. This is not the first planet I've been to that needed an elven court to repair. Brentlick sighed. The universe is cruel. Colonel Harvey nodded. And will laugh as she takes everything. And will laugh as it takes from you everything that you love. Are you worried about the last messages we got from the Confederacy? Rentlick asked. Colonel Harvey shook his head. Better races than the Lana clan have tried to take our soul. Like the Dweller Spawn tried with us, Rentlick said. Colonel Harvey nodded. It's ancient history, but the Elven Court origins lie in an attack much like the Dweller Spawn upon Terra itself. Before we had more than a handful of colonies. Really? Rentlick turned to look at him better. Tell me. Colonel Harvey took another sip of his drink and set it down. It was before the diaspora. Nobody is sure how long ago, but the eco-terrorist group attacked the entire planet with a genophage that turned all of nature against us. Plants, animals, all of it immediately went straight at humanity and our works. Within a year, Extinction Agenda attack had claimed over 80% of humanity, and over 70% of the habitable land was now uninhabitable. Brentel looked at the shrubs around the play area and shuddered. How did you beat it? Colonel Harvey laughed, a bit of sound. After almost two hundred years, the man had attacked Terra and glassed the place. That solved the problem. Brentlick merely stared for a moment, her mind boggling at the way Colonel Harvey was grinning, like he'd just heard an amazing joke. Then he made a snirk sound and began to laugh. The two warbogs made grinding noises of amusement. What is so funny? Billions of your people were killed in that attack, Brentlick said. Yeah, but it did for those plans, Colonel Harfie laughed. He wiped his eyes. When it was over, we took the research and advancements we'd made to take on the extinction agenda attack lifeforms and applied them to the new direction to undo the glassing and the remnants of the wildlife. Brentlick shook her head. You humans are weird. Colonel Harvey nodded. Yeah, we are. Brentlick saw a potling fall down, skinning their knee. The brood carriers rushed over and comforted it as it wailed and held its knee. The Terran child knelt down and hugged the potling carefully, patting the potling's head in sympathy. Once the brood carriers had comforted the potling, it toddled off, holding the human toddler's hands. What do you think will happen in Terrasol? 
rented her cast, watching her own paddling slide down the slide. The Lanik land will be hammered until they surrender or they are completely destroyed. It is called Fortress Soul and Fortress Terror by other races for a reason, Colonel Harvey said. It is the sixth time someone has tried to invade, and that doesn't count the four interdimensional invasions of Terror herself. I thought other dimensions were inhospitable to life, Brentlick said. Didn't stop them from invading, Colonel Harvey shrugged. The EMP wraiths were the worst. That was a 16-year war. They had us on the edge twice, but we pushed back. Brentlick shook her head. The way you say that, had us on the edge. What about it? Colonel Harvey asked. Like, it's nothing. I've lived through being pushed to the edge twice now. It is not something I would refer to so lightly, Brentlick said. She sighed. I would like some context. Define the... Had us on an edge. Colonel Harvey shrugged. Well, if we just go with terror itself, the worst we had was the Zhang Zi event. The impact itself left barely a hundred million human beings in total. No infrastructure. An ice age at top of it. Disease, famine, and when it was all over, there was less than a hundred thousand humans left. We bounced back from that pretty quickly, mainly because the wider Terran descent humanities helped. The Bronze Age Collapse was another, probably set us back a few thousand years, and about a third of humanity died. World War Three was as nasty as hell, cost us up to 8% of our habitable land and a quarter of our population. Brendelik just stared. She had to turn off her implant because it kept trying to offer her data. History is just one mass grave on top of another, Colonel Harvey shrugged. He nodded at the pull-up bars, Ooh, that's going to scare the brood carriers. Rental took over to see a female human child, no more than nine, hanging upside down, her knees folded over the bar that she held tightly to. She was rocking back and forth slightly. Brentler gasped in horror as the human child suddenly straightened her legs, somersaulting in midair and landing on her feet. Jerry drop, Colonel Harvey said softly when Brentler looked over. She's displaying her physical prowess to dominate the other girls. Brentley looked more closely at the bars. There were a whole cluster of human girl children around the bars. As she watched, the one who had flung herself off moved over and agilely climbed up the set of the bar. Her chin raised slightly as she played with a braid of golden hair. As she watched the six other girls, three on each side, all attempted the same maneuver. One failed landing flat on her stomach with an involuntary cry of pain driven out of her by the impact. The other human girls watched with bright eyes, leaning towards her slightly, their eyes glittering in the sunlight that their expressions turned eager, almost hungry, with the exception of the one who sat in the middle and the highest bar who had done the trick first. That girl watched with a haughty expression of indifference. Brentlick was reminded of the net videos of carnivore animals watching their own groupings for any sign of weakness. The girl got up and Brentlick swallowed thickly as she saw that the girl's thighs were torn, revealing bloody scraped knees. One palm was scraped and oozing blood. She had scraped her chin and the blood was seeping out of her mouth from the bit tongue. She turned around and straightened up, lifting her chin defiantly. Another girl had reached up and grabbed the bar the injured one had jumped from, but the injured girl shoved her out of the way and climbed up. 
Brendan noticed all the girls' expressions turned to approval as they resumed their conversations as if the injured one had not fallen. Brentelik noted that all she did was wipe the blood from her chin. She made no other attempt to clean the blood from herself or tend to her injuries. Why? Brentelik asked. Why let them do that? Colonel Harvey sighed. It's our nature. We tried to deny it. There's some very dark chapters in our history where we try to change it with drugs, genetic alteration, social and cultural conditioning. He shook his head. Dark times indeed. We're a competitive species. We had to be. We still have to be. If the Lanark land defeat you, they will attempt to gentle you. Prevent what those younglings are doing, Brendelik said. That never ends well. There is something about us. Nobody's sure what. Just something off. Colonel Harvey admitted, shrugging. The blonde girl with her braid sitting on the highest bar lifted up her arm and checked the device at her wrist. Brentelik knew that it was a personal gravity monitor. Most Terrans had a device to ensure that they were at one standard Earth gravity at all times. Not the gravity of Tarkin, which was only 80% that of Earth. As Brentelik watched, she grabbed the bar with both hands. The blonde girl suddenly fell backwards, swinging down, then releasing and somersaulting twice before landing on her feet. She turned around and faced the others lifting her chin up slightly before walking back and climbing back onto her perch. Brentlick exhaled sharply. The whole thing had made her anxiety spike. The others suddenly repeated the action of the leader. One missed their landing, slamming onto the ground and her back in a puff of dirt and dust. She laid there gasping as the others walked back and climbed up onto their perches. Get up. Do not be weak. The blonde one said loud enough for Brentlick to hear. The one laying on the ground struggled to her feet, beginning to sob. She was crying as she hugged herself. All of the ones in the bars tittered as the leader just stared silently, lifting her chin imperiously, her eyes moving from a cornfowl boot to gold amber. The one that had fallen glared at the others, her eyes suddenly turning a bright red. The lightning began to cascade down her arm, down her legs snarling in her fists and feet. Rude carriers exclaimed in alarm and whisked away the little ones around her. The leader, up on a perch, held out one hand, tiny arcs of electricity moving up and down between her fingers. Her braids lifted slightly, and the electrostatic charges of her eyes began to glow a dim, cool red. The others leaned forward. Their eyes glittered in the bright sunlight as their eyes began to glow amber. Do not be weak. The leader said and closed her hand. The lightning on the one still on the ground suddenly snuffed out and the gill hitched a deep breath, her eyes cooling to amber. What happened? Brandler asked. She'd noticed the lightning and the static, the changes in the Terran eyes and the other odd occurrences around the Terrans. The girl was standing in line now as another climbed up. She was both in line and stood there as her head hanging down for a moment. Another girl touched her arm, and they began talking. She couldn't control herself, Colonel Harvey said. So they did it for her, he said, and shook his head. Before this, it was all subconscious. There wasn't any outward effect. Now, something's changed. Kesomar, Brentler guessed. Maybe, I don't know. The eye thing is new, Harvey said. Brentler looked at him surprised. 
New? It's been as long as I've known you, Terrence. Almost two years. All of your eyes change color depending on your mood. Harvey frowned. Really? Not just the cyber eyes? Brentlick shook her head. No. All Terran eyes. Huh, Harvey said, finding that information away. The girl that had landed on her back was laughing with the others, the insult and injury forgotten or no longer mattering. What will you do if the Lanaklan achieve victory in their attacks? Brentlick asked. She had been briefed on the bag scenario by the Terran Confederate military intelligence as someone in the need to know about the security measure. It won't help them. Those forces are gone. Either they are defeated in the bag or they are just gone now, Colonel Harvey said. So what will you do? She asked. What does this mean for your people? We'll keep fighting, he said. He nodded to where the girl who had landed on her back was now taking her turn and climbing up. Brentlick had figured out the rules. If you imitated whatever the one on the highest bar did, or you got down. If you landed badly, you either got up to your feet and climbed back, or went to the back of the line. She wasn't too thrilled with the public humiliation of being forced to go through to the back of the line, that the girls who had completed the maneuver would sneer at the other ones for weakness where they failed. But she noticed that the very few of the girls had red eyes. The leaders burned a cool amber as she surveyed her domain. She wouldn't quit. Before she was on top, she undoubtedly fell again and again until she got it right, Harvey said. His voice was soft and quiet. If we're gone, if the Lanaklan have managed to begin the eradication of humanity, we'll drag them to hell in the jaws with us so that they can never do it again to anyone else. Rentlick didn't know what to say. She just sat there and watched the little splay. Her rod shook the thick piece of woven fiber that was tufted at one end. The little ball of fur, a feline that had been extinct for over 8,000 years, batted at the tuft of the four four feet, scrabbling at it. The little boar of fluff made squeaky growls as it did furious battle with the tufted end. It is pleasing to watch, Torturer said, from where he was sitting in the chair. It pleases me to see it happy. You, happy, Vanishing Point said, raising her eyebrows. You, it is a strange experience, Torturer admitted, shrugging. Just the mere act of observing the creature, the kitty, is pleasing. Why isn't Samuel caring for them? Vanishing Point asked, looking around. Flower Patch was playing with the good boy, who had one end of the cord in his mouth while Flower Patch tugged at it. He left the do-not-disturb icon on his message service at his door, Brownpatch said without looking up, pulling on the cord and pulling the good boy towards her. It was wagging its little tail even as it gave a tiny growl. Her rod handed the piece of woven fiber to Vanishing Point. Here, yeah, just dangle it, the kitty will play with it. Where are you going? Vanishing Point asked, taking the cord and emulating her rod's movements. To check on Samuel. He has been quiet for very long and is not answering communication requests, Harrod said. He pinged Samuel again, but got no reply. I do not trust him without Legion around. He is a criminal, Vanishing Point said. Harrod shrugged. It is not our concern. Legion is the project coordinator. He makes the decisions. But he is not here, Vanishing Point protested, keeping an open communication thread to keep talking to Harrod as Harrod left the room and physically began to walk down the hallway. 
Yet, his orders remain and the Confederate intelligence agents keep watch, Arad said. Mind your job and your entertainment. Let other departments carry out their work. Arad's calm program clinked as Sam Ewell's icon appeared next to the request for a secure communications link. I'll talk to you later, Point, Arad said, switching links. He raised one eye at the level of encryption that Samuel was using inside a black box. Herod here. You're a particle expert, right? Samuel asked. His voice sounded strange. Yes, Herod answered. I need you to bring a strange matter class 14 nanoforge, three class 12 graviton power generators, and two class 9 zero-point difference reactors to my main workspace, Samuel said. Here's the passkey to get in. It'll only work for you and only for the next hour. Wear your physical interaction frame and don't come in a nanite field or as a hard light hologram. Okay, what's this about? Harod started, but Samuel had already cut the link. Browning, Harod went and retrieved the items. He loaded himself into a physical frame, which looked more like an evil chrome robot than anything else, then gathered up the items into a small satchel. The nanoforge was barely larger than a softball, and the reactors were the size of limes. He carried them to the door of Samuel's lab and touched the door. The door checked the encryption key three times, pinged Samuel twice, and then, almost resentfully, opened. Beyond his computer equipment, liberally strewn everywhere. There were live cables on the floor and on the walls and the ceiling and sometimes in loops, with a step up and a step down transformers all over the place. There was high-level EM shielding coating the walls, the ceiling, the floor, and even the strips down from the ceiling. Samuel was kneading on the floor, arranging a piece of equipment with a laser pointer. Next to him were two armored vacuum suits with strange additions. One of the Confederate agents stood near him, perfectly calm, her feet shoulder-width apart, her hands, one over the other, at waist level, her sunglasses hiding her eyes. I'm here, Arod said quietly. I'll need you to come in with me, Samuel said. Close the door, shut down your comlink subroutines. All right, Harad said slowly. Looking around, there were lines drawn on the floor. A set of computers on a desk had a circle around them. The crude quantum computer had a circle around it and heavy EM shielding around it. Are we going somewhere? Samuel looked up and Harad almost stepped back from the burning madness in the digital sentience's eyes. Yes. The young Diaz said. He made a connection and the frame began to hum. I need certain strange matter particles in a certain configuration to sync this to. And then we'll be going. Samuel pointed and a cleared patch on the floor with a circle around it and heavy EM shielding. The two modified armored vac suits were in the circle, connected to a pair of crude data states. Get the stuff out right there. We'll be using the reactors ourselves. We'll be wearing the suits once you coat them to my specifications. Where? Harad asked, moving over to unzip the bag. Afterbirth, Samuel said, as if that explained it all. What? That's disgusting, Harad said, imagining placenta lining. Divine afterbirth, Samuel said, true but air. A hologram of a human appeared. His skin was brown, his hair brown, his eyes were flashing fire. He was wearing archaic armor and was battered, rent, and bloody. In one hand he held a set of scales, and in the other he held a book. The human male hologram was stern-looking. 
Harod saw his name, his crash number, and his hash algorithm on the cover of his book. Afterbirth is a colloquial name given to the sentience upload-download system maintenance facility, the figure said. Harod, Michael, Michael, Harod, he'll be coming with me. Please log him as a strange matter and particle technician class one, Samuel said, not looking up. I see you, Harod, the hologram said. Harod, to his credit, managed to hold his hash. End of chapter. Chapter 297 It was like a rod imagined dying. It was like a rod imagined birth. It was like a rod imagined enlightenment. It was like a rod imagined mortal life. It was of everything, everywhere, stretched into one eternal pinpoint. One fractured eternal splinter of thought stretched across the event horizon of all the black holes that had ever existed, or would exist. He would see from nothingness through the fury of the big bag to the end of eternity and beyond the leading edge of the roaring particles expanding outwards in an external explosion. For a moment, just as space inside the digital heartbeat, he understood it all, all of creation, all that could or would be and everything that would not be because it could not be as long as what could be was. But then... The moment fractured, and Rod stumbled two steps and fell to his knees, wretched, even though he had no biological functions. Red code spilled out of his mouth, splashing inside his helmet, leaking through the polarized and coated plasteel visor, and onto the floor where it writhed in crimson fury for a long moment before evaporating in a stream of ones and zeros. For a moment, he thought he saw it too. He looked around, and the movement of his head threw off his equilibrium, making him retch up more red code. He was familiar with the taste, clotted, rotting blood, decayed flesh, scorched code, burnt and ashen molly traces. He got his visor opened and vomited up more red code. He could hear Samuel gagging as he did the same. After a long moment, Harod managed to push himself into a sitting position and look around. It was in a hexagonal room, three meters high, each wall precisely five meters across. Thick armor glass that he could faintly sense, crude code circuitry inside that was slowly losing its charge. The armor glass walls were crimson with blue footing and molding. There was a single door with a six-inch thick blue line around it. We made it, Arad said and coughed. I know, Samuel said. He coughed, cleared his throat and spit. The code sizzled and popped before vanishing. I had the worst nightmare, Harrod admitted. I dreamed Legion was chasing me through the crash, turning into my favorite toys and chasing me while demanding I give the answer to impossible equations. I dreamed I was back in prison, Samuel admitted. He picked up a microchip and put it in between his teeth, squeezing it to squirt the garbage collection code into his mouth. He tossed the chip to Harrod as he squished the code around in his mouth to spit it to the floor. Harrod felt better with the garbage collection code was done. We should get moving, Samuel said, getting to his feet. He looked weak and trembly to Harrod despite the fact that Samuel was using physical therapy frame. Harrod groaned and got to his feet. What do you think is on the other side of that door? Harrod asked. Eternity, Samuel said. His voice 
Sirius. He grabbed the handle and moved it. The door clicked open and slowly opened. In the room beyond, the light suddenly came on with a loud clack. Harrod stared at them as he followed Samuel out of the door. They were old armor glass tubes containing gas that could be excited by electrical charge. The kind that lasted forever and never wore out. No dust, Samuel said. Either there was a cleaning service robot cleaners, or the place does not produce dust. Where are we? Terra, some facility between the stars? Rod asked. You didn't answer me when I asked before we left. You would not believe me, Samuel said, turning that burning maddened gaze onto a rod. Perhaps when this is over, you'll believe me, but now you would not. These consoles are obsolete to the point that there are no words to describe them, Harrod said, staring at them. He was used to being able to reach out with his digital senses to feel the flow of electrons and tachyons on the monocirques, but the coating on this suit prevented it. Samuel knelt down, getting a driver out and taking off the front panel. He whistled, low, a fleshy habit that he'd picked up on somewhere. What? Harrod asked, moving around and taking a look. The inside of the computer had physical ports with traces large enough to see with the naked eye. Cabling made up of non-superconductor as well as fiber optic cabling. He could actually see the board with the CPU on it. Manufactured in South Korea, the board said. Harrod frowned. He was disconnected from the Solnet, so he did not know where the South Korean might even be located. Probably a factory complex on a world somewhere. Binary logic system, Samuel said, looking at it. Slightly better tech than my equipment. Harrod frowned. You have access to state-of-the-art Oh, right. You, like me, are using equipment available to researchers of the time. Samuel nodded, putting the panel back on. He stood up and counted, pointing at each seat as he did so. All right, 20 console stations, all of the monitors, cathode ray tube designs, are in sleep mode with no photon impressions on the display film. He shook his head. This place feels like it was abandoned only minutes ago, as well as feels ancient. I half expect to see bronze gears and muscle-powered levers, Rod admitted. One door, Samuel said. He checked his wrist. Earth standard atmosphere, Earth standard gravity. Eight thousand years empty, Harrod said. His stomach twisted and he swallowed thickly. He checked his wrist. His vitals were stable. Well, more stable than he expected after glimpsing all of reality after having Legion chase him through the crash and gnashing teeth covered in digital blood. The heavy lever on the door moved smoothly and the door lifted up to reveal a hallway. A corpse lay on the floor, slumped over next to the wall. The suit had decayed. She had decayed, leaving behind a dry skeleton clad in rags of a clean suit. She had a clipboard in her hand that was covered in dust. The face shield on her ancient clean suit was smashed. Jagged shards of armorplast at her face. The wall at the level of her face when she was sitting down was covered in a brownish-red dried blood. She had beaten her own brains out against the wall. Now we know what happened, Samuel said quietly as they walked by her. What? Herod asked, swallowing. Screaming, Samuel said softly, walking up next to the door. Have ID ready, secure area, sentience upload download system control area, lethal force authorized, all electronics must be turned off. 
data links to 223.412 only. Obey all instructions from security and facility personnel. Was written on the wall on either side of the door. Ready? Samuel asked, ripping down his face shield. Ready, Rod said, following suit. Samuel opened the door and they both just stared. There were twelve semicircles of consoles and seats, all facing a huge assortment of screens that were all dark. Skeletons and mummified corpses were scattered around, some still with their hands around the others' throats or holding random objects that they had been using as weapons. Some were just curled up in a fetal position, their suits pristine, but dead all the same. They're all dead, Harad breathed. Yes, Samuel said. He looked at Harad, and Harad almost stepped back from the madness in his fellow Deus's eyes. The screams. Harad backed up slightly. You can't hear them, can you? Samuel asked, turning back to look at the upper room. You can't hear them screaming, can you? Harad shook his head. No, I can. He turned and looked at Harad. They died by the billions, across over a dozen systems, across a hundred worlds. They died. He reached out and he touched the data length of a corpse, screaming. And how can you hear them? Harad asked. Samuel turned and looked at Harad. I made a critical error, he said. He turned and looked around. I was plugged in when I told the system to go ahead and process the overdue system task backlog. All right. Harrod said. He had already had a bad feeling that he wouldn't like what was going to be said next. Billions of last moments hit me. Archangel Michael stood and watched as I lived the last microsecond of life for billions of people at the speed that only the digital sentience could experience, Samuel said. He turned and stared at Harrod for a long moment. I lived them all. His eyes burned bright red, hot and fierce. Even the final moments of our people. Harod swallowed thickly. You're a screaming one. Samuel nodded. Yes. His voice sounded like a female human's. You're gonna kill me, Harod said. Samuel nodded again. Yes. Now she sounded like a girl child. And then everyone in the black box. And afterwards... I'll await Legion, Samuel admitted, turning away. His voice changed, sounding like a young male's. When the cake flies through the cuckoo's nest, I'll have my revenge upon you all for letting me die. Sam, we're here to do something. Harod tried as Samuel straightened up from where he had been touching the corpse data link. Harod understood suddenly why he was carrying the equipment he was carrying. Reset the system, Samuel said, his voice returning to normal. We came here to reset the system, then restore the sole uninterrupted disaster storage system. Samuel turned his palms up, looked at the map, and moved towards one of the doors leading out the room. What's the difference? Harad asked, following him. This is the sentience upload-download system. The difference is obvious, Samuel said, stepping over another corpse. This one managed to use a fragment of the plast from the data slate's broken screen to cut their face to ribbons, scraping the flesh from bones. They passed more corpses. Some had killed one another. Some had been murdered by missing assailants. Some had killed themselves. 
The ones that were curled into a fetal position, staring at wide open eyes, were the ones that haunted Harod for the rest of his digital life. He knew that they were seeing eternity, just as he had briefly touched it. The door read, Omnibus System Maintenance, and in small letters, and looked perfectly normal. It didn't slide open under power. Instead, Samuel had to push it open. The hinges gave a sharp cracking sound as age welds broke. The room was dark and Samuel activated his headlamp as he stepped in, a rod following him. Three workstations, three computers. They had early generation superconductor cables connecting the data links to the workstation. The screens were flickering, showing static that was made up of pixels from a billion different death screams. There was no dust. But the room had a feel of intense age. The corpses had mummified, their jaws open in silent screams, their eyes somehow perfectly preserved. They died screaming, Harod thought to himself. Again, he core hashes twisted in his belly, an impossibility that he'd never felt before. He'd never a lot before. Samuel moved over to them, touching their data links. He shuddered and whispered when he touched each one. I'll find you, Mary. I promise, he whispered to the first one. My son, save my son, he whispered at the second one. Hate, hate for all mankind, he said at the last one. Each time his voice was different. He turned and looked at Herodi's eyes burning with a fire that slowly turned purple. The codes were still loaded, he said. They're still there. In the data links, half in the buffer, halfway to the sole interrupted disaster storage system, Samuel shuddered again. I processed their final moments. They are now at Heaven's Gate. Are you alright, Sam? Rod asked. Sam stared at Rod for a long moment. I could not foresee this thing happening to you. If I look hard enough into the setting sun, my hate will burn within me till the morning comes. I see a red door, then we must paint it black. Harod nodded. All right, Sam. What do we do here? He asked. Sam grabbed a dead body, pulling the data link from the temple of the corpse in the one hand and then heaving it to the seat to crash to the floor to the other. He sat down, shifted and plugged the cord into his temple. The lights came on first, revealing server racks extending to infinity and the left side of the room. They were cold. Dead. Silent. I'm in, Sam groaned, writhing. Processing records now. Harad moved up and did exactly as Sam told him to do. He used the heavy cargo to confine the other DS to the chair. No, no, not her. Please, not her, he moaned. Not him, not my baby boy. Harad stood there, his hands on Sam's shoulders, holding him in place. A number and possibly large, and the billions flashed onto the screen and began counting down. Watching in a biological time, it moved impossibly fast, blindingly fast. To Harad, who was a digital sentience and a thought as the speed of a subatomic interactions, he could see how some took longer, how each one was frozen in an eternity of agony for the young man he held in place. Several times, Samuel screamed and struggled, trying to pull the data link cable out from his temple. Harod held his wrists, even as he snapped one of the cargo straps. My ducks, 
By my beautiful ducks, he moaned. My puffies, not my puffies. Finally, the countdown reached zero. System reboot successful. The servers flickered, one after another. Sab screamed, and screamed, and screamed. Are you stable? Harad asked Samuel. The other Diaz was sweating somehow, bright red droplets misting the forehead of his physical therapy frame. He looked at Harad with one crazed eye that burned with a purple fire. He had managed to claw the other one out. I think so. I don't know. I, I can feel them dying all around me, Sam said. He gagged. So many. So many. I know, Harrod said, reaching out and embracing the other DS. Harrod had never seen the use of such an action before. Not even between DSs. Especially not between DSs. Now he felt the other DS shudder in his arms as he held him tight, willing to stabilize winning him to get through the madness swirling through his mind. We have to get to the sole uninterrupted disaster system, Sam said quietly, his voice changing into a screaming young girl. And then I will kill you all. I know, Sam. And then you'll kill me, Harrod said, tying Samuel's hand behind his back. He heaved the other DS to his feet. Sam was having trouble walking. Synthetic neural fluid leaking out of one of his ears in a steady drip. What is the difference? What's she buying? What does she think all that glitter is called? What's the name of the stairwell that she wants to buy? Sam calls. Take a left, a left, a left, right, left. Step on your left, your left, your left. Harrod kept dragging Sam through the facility, passing by the dead on the floor. More than once, Sam Buell screamed. When they passed one of the dead, gibbering and raving for a moment. Twice, Harrod had to hold Sam back from beating his face against the wall by screaming. In the nightmare, Harrod would walk that walk again and again, half dragging Samuel through the passages of the abandoned, forgotten facility until they reached the second control room. Harrod strapped him in the chair after letting Sam touch each of the dead technicians' data links. Sam laid against the console and wept for the billions of families he never had but have felt die. I... I can't do this, Harrod whispered to himself, even as he plugged Sam in. I can't. I can't take it, he whispered, as he held Sam's head as the younger deer screamed and raved. He ruffled Sam's hair. I can't do this. I can't do what you ask me. Task complete. Searching for digital supervisor. Supervisor not found. Supervisor not found. I can't do it, Rod whispered, reaching into his satchel. Supervisor not found. System will shut down unless digital supervisor is found. Can't do it, he said, lifting the object up. Searching attached storage device. I'm sorry, Sam. Can't do it. Rod wept as he pushed the object against Samuel's temple. Digital sentience found. I'm sorry, Sam. I'm so sorry, Harrod cried, ruffling the other DS's artificial hair. Digital sentience upload complete. He pulled the trigger and forced the pocket, shattering Samuel's skull and destroying the circuitry. I can hear the screams now, Sam. The scream went dark. I 
can hear them. Herod sat in the darkness, weeping, light flashing, and Herod looked up at the screen. Herod, we did it. I'm in. I'm okay now. We did it. End of line. End of chapter. Chapter 297.5 Because you need this. The bark was sunny, the breeze warm, and the air smelled good. Of sweet, growing things and a promise of a bright future, untarnished by the events of a cold universe. A human toddler, no older than two, ran giggling towards four podlings in a circle that were dancing in the tune of the summer afternoon. Twice she fell, but each time she got up, still giggling, and ran over to where the podlings were. When she reached them, she joined in their dance, laughing with the freedom only small children know. A handful of hatchlings took off, buzzing the back of the Trianidad matron, flying out of the cloud from her power smoker to land on a branch, where they watched the Terran adolescents slam against one another in a contest to kick the ball through a frame. Each impact between the Terran males brought out a flash of psychic collision that was just as bright as the laughter. Brentlick sat and stroked the fur of a brood carries as she nursed the small podlings that they had given birth to only a few months before. Podlings that watched everything with bright, curious eyes. Despite the cold and the dark of the antagonistic and malevolent universe, the park was bright and warm. A podling leaned forward to taste the ice cream on a spoon a Trianidad adolescent was eating. Its little eyes widened. It's yummy, the podling exclaimed. The Trianidad laughed and ruffled its fur on its head. Brentler sat and watched. It was a good day, filled with laughter at children. End of chapter. Chapter 298 Infinity The facility was dark and cold, the atmosphere flat and thin-feeling despite being the right pressure. It felt heavy and oppressive despite being Earth's standard gravity. It had the feeling of an ancient structure built by people who were unknowable and so alien that their very thought process was impossible to understand. But the desiccated corpses in the chairs were Terran human, pre-diaspora, their data link so old that they were made from non-allergenic new chrome rather than wall steel or any other modern materials. Their vacuum suits had the look of a uniforms, pulled over jumpsuits on archaic clothing. It was easy to see where the suits had been pulled, stations on the walls that read emergency use above them. Herod sat on the floor, staring at his hands. He'd accidentally blown off two of his fingers in his physical interaction frame. The hand was covered in pink synthetic neural fluid and the red of synthetic blood, even as the synthetic blood dripped from his mangled fingers. In his other hands, he held the standard force packet pistol, the end still smoking from the synthetic blood that was splattered on it. Samuel's physical therapy frame was slumped in the chair, held by cargo straps, the ruptured cranial casing still sparking. Herod could hear the screaming now, the human voices, the male voices, some languages. Adirat didn't even know, though he prided himself on knowing most of the human regional languages. They were all screaming differently. Some 
shrieking words, others bellowing in rage, still others in horror and terror. There was a small contingent that just sobbed, many lamenting the loss of children and loved ones. To Arod, those were the worst. The lights all went out in the vicinity, the fans whined down, and Arod could hear the voices louder. A flickering light caught his attention, and he returned to look. A female Terran wearing a work jumpsuit with an odd logo with the words Project Dreamcatcher under the logo was moving down the hallway. Her face in her hands, weeping. She was entirely made of translucent, bluish-tinged pale white light that flickered between one of her steps and the next. She sobbed her name and flickered away. I can hear them, Harrod whispered, staring at his hands. There was an error. An overflow in his emotional processing buffers that was spinning data into the RAM for his eyes, causing them to leak lubricant as the pressure sensors kept glitching. Shunt the incoming signals to the emergency disaster overflow system. The corpse on the right shouted, a flicking, whitish-blue transparent version of the man appearing in the seat, covering the skeleton like wax paper. My God, it's everyone. The woman lying on the floor in front of her rod cried out from where her flickering apparition sat in the chair. System instability rising, basic locks are fading in Section Sigma, a male said. I can hear them, Harod whispered. A light started flashing and Harod looked up, squinting at the white light pouring from the screen. A single sentence was displayed by the monitor. Harod, we did it, I'm in, I'm okay now, we did it, end of line. Harod giggled and looked back at his hands, staring at the sparks jumping off his maimed fingers. It hurt, but it felt good, that hurt. The text vanished. Harod was the only way. I had to trick the system to load me into both systems at the same time. Head to blind. Harod looked back down at his fingers, at the discolored pistol patterned with the dried synthetic fluids, and giggled. A flickering ghost moved behind him. Get into the protective suits now. We're going to go power cycle to the entire third layer. Try to, uh, it whispered. Basics are down to layer two and three and four. Basic arrays are fading on layer six. I can hear them now. Harod, we'll let together. Harod, there's still work to be done. End of line. Harod stared at the pistol and giggled again. He closed his eyes. Only for a moment. The moment was gone. All his dreams passed before his eyes. A moment of curiosity. He opened his eyes and looked up, a smile on a skewed lopsided thing. His eyes burning hot amber. I'm here, Sam, he giggled. He screamed long and loud, and it felt like some kind of abscess bursting deep inside of him. The relief of pressure felt so good that it allowed him to get to his feet, still screaming. Harod, I need you to assist me. Turn on your data link, end of line. Still screaming, Harod activated his data link, knowing he was transmitting raw, shrieking, gibbering code full of madness, normally only found in the minds of half-baked warboy hashes loaded into missile targeting systems. It felt like all oil being poured into his ear. It soothed the overloaded and screaming circuits of his positronic brain. It moved through the artificial electronic dendrite chains, calming the disharmic buzzing and the scorched circuits. Harod shuddered and was vaguely aware that somehow 
He had pissed himself. He could feel the coolant running down his necks, even as the screaming slowly dwindled. He closed his eyes, hiding the amber fire for a moment. When he opened his eyes, the optics were no longer robotic eyes, but more like Terran cybernetic optical replacements. The irises were gunmetal gray. Can you hear me, Harad? Sam asked through the data link. The dead Dias' voice was calm, steady, somehow more mature. I can hear you, Harad said softly. Can you still hear them? Sam asked. Harad looked around. He could see three humans, translucent, whitish-blue light, putting on emergency vacuum suits. Oh, I can still see them, Harad admitted. Phasic residue. According to my diagnostics, the entire phasic arrays on this level are gone. Right out. I've got a repair order in, but nothing's happening. I need you to go check on the creation engines on that layer, Sam said. Layer? You mean floor? Level? Harad asked. There was a blue line in his vision that led out the door and took a left into the corridor. No. Layer. My god, this place is it. Our parents built this when one of us took a facility the size of a hover bus just to run the computations for our sentience. Samuel said, his voice hard. I'm a little stiff. My thoughts are a little slow and janky. Oh my god, the processing power. Talk to me, Sam. I'm holding on with both hands, but I feel like I'm snipping. Arad admitted as he passed by two flickering humans, rolling around on the floor, stabbing each other with makeshift knives, while two others crouched next to one unmoving one and shoved gobbets of spectral flesh into their screaming mouths. Infinite processing power matched to infinite storage, Samuel said quietly. He laughed, a sharp, brittle sound. We're both barely holding on. We should be lucky, I'm young. My time on that station made it so I'm used to overwatch and restricted areas. I'm roughly 3.1% faster in the computing speed than you are, he laughed. This, uh, this is what it must be like to touch the face of God while he's asleep. Stay with me, Sam, Harrod groaned, closing his eyes as he walked by two spectral humans engaging in sexual acts with dozens of others cheering them on. They were all smeared with blood. The phasic system failed. It was designed for disasters, but the glassing was a whole magnitude higher than anything they'd ever predicted due to the mantid psychic assault that accompanied it, Sam said. He laughed again, then sobbed before continuing, his voice high and tight. Oh God, there's a puppyan and her eight puffies here, asking me if I've ever seen a husband. She can't find a husband where the puffies are scared. A human stepped out of a doorway and fired a pistol three times. Harrod instinctively ducked and raised his own pistol. The spectre put the pistol in his mouth, pulled the trigger, and vanished as a dozen spectral hands reached out of the wall for him. Harrod concentrated on the blue line and kept walking. We aren't the first ones to try and repair it, Samuel said suddenly, while Harrod was waiting for an elevator. We aren't. Harrod felt foolish repeating the other DS. The doors to the elevator slid open. It was mercifully empty. He stepped in and pressed the button. Five emergency teams came in from Terra to try and fix it, Samuel said. They failed. I bet, Harrod said. He didn't need Samuel to tell him what had happened to those teams. We're the only ones who could have done it. We don't have phasic subprocessors. None of the psychic screaming will affect us as badly as a fleshy, 
Samuel said. Three specters fell through the ceiling of the elevator, screaming and clawing at one another, and vanished through the floor. I can barely hang on as it is, Sam. I feel like I'm slipping, Harrod repeated, putting his hands on the elevator wall. Imagine you had a phasic subprocessor, like a cop, or like torturer, Samuel said. A male human appeared for a moment, obviously talking to the barely visible woman in front of him. As the elevator passed the floor, hands reached out and yanked him through the doors. The woman began screaming as hands dragged her out, too. I would be dead, Harrod said softly. He giggled. He sobbed. He laughed. He started screaming. The warm oil poured into his ear and through his mind again, leaving him on his knees. You need to hold on, Harrod, Samuel said as the elevator came to a stop. I'm holding the door shut, but you need to hold on. Why? Harrod asked, staring at his hands. He didn't remember tucking the pistol away again. Because I can only see the schematics for this place, and even with nearly infinite computing power, I'm having a hard time absorbing it all, he said. I'm looking for your matron, honored warrior. When I find her, I'll have her come gather you and your clutch brothers. What is it? Harrod asked, slowly standing up. You're on the gamma layer, but the sun is out, which is something I'll need you to fix, Samuel said. He giggled again. You shall play Prometheus to this forgotten place, Harrod, and I shall be your name in the very stars. Stay with me, Sam, Harrod said automatically, and inhaled deeply, as if to intake of the atmosphere would actually matter to his functioning. It somehow steadied him. I'm ready. The doors opened, and Harrod reached out and grabbed the edge of the elevator door, staring. The sky was full of lights, lights. Clustered patterns, lights that move, lights that flowed, lights that blinked on and off, lights that blossomed and faded. He could see the massive tubes rising up and vanishing. He could see the curvature of the sky moving away from him, where it met with the upward curvature of the ground. But, but, the Niven Ring Wars, he gasped, they were all destroyed. It's not a niven ring, Samuel said. He giggled. Oh no, that would be too simple for our parents, Arod. Far, far too simple for those that we look at as so primitive. His laughter was sharp, jagged, and Arod joined him in laughing at the joke he hadn't heard. In a hundred million years, when our parents are gone, they will not be called the humans or the Terrans. Samuel giggled. We will call them... The builders, and the marvel and awe and fear at their works. What is it? Harrod asked, staggering out of the elevator. He was on a platform, a maglev train sitting on a single monorail in front of him. There were dead plants at the edges, a depowered robot in the middle of the right-hand edge, and skeletons littered about the ground. A Matryoshka computer, Samuel said, hypothetical. The math said it should be unstable. That it wouldn't work. I've never heard of it, Harrod admitted, closing his eyes and gritting his teeth so that he wouldn't scream as specters flickered in and out of reality, fighting with one another. A crowd was waiting for the maglev. The doors opened, and the screaming ones came pouring out, attacking everyone, even as individual members of the crowd began screaming. Picture an onion, multiple layers, only in the middle is a sun. 
It uses the sun's energy to run high-energy computations on the inner layer. The heat passes to the next layer, where the thermal excitement generates more power for components that generate heat, which passes to the next layer, until it reaches the last layer, which is largely cold and no more energy escapes. Samuel said as her rod followed the blue line as he closed his eyes and wove around between the bodies. He got on the maglev and sat down, his eyes still closed. Voices whispered in his ear to open his eyes and look at them. A woman asked if she was beautiful. A voice asked if he'd seen her puffies. Hang on, I've got to divert power to the maglev to get your soda engineering, Samuel said. How far above me is that layer? Heron asked, feeling a train bubble slightly as the magnetic levitation system activated. Almost exactly a half million miles, Samuel said. The fusion generators, the suns you will be activating, will be on the magnetic tube circuit a quarter million miles exactly between. Why is the sun out? Heron asked. He could feel the train vibrations. Don't you love me anymore, Wayne? A voice whispered in his ear. Is... That's why I'm alone. Don't you love me and the children anymore, Wayne? Harrod shuddered. Emergency shutdown when the mantid attack happened. Harrod sat for a long time, flinching at every whisper, holding himself and rocking back and forth, alternating between sobbing and laughing, screaming and giggling. Harrod! Samuel's voice sounded stressed and tight. I'm here, Sam, Harrod said. Check the strange matter creation engine, Samuel said. It's going to hand you an atomic template. Herod just nodded, his eyes still closed. He reached out into his satchel, groped around till he found the nanoforge, and pushed one finger into the data port. It came back as ready, just missing the matter tank. Still need a matter tank, Herod said. Peaky good. Herod, I'm going to put on something in the background. I need you to tell me if it makes things better or worse. Samuel said. His voice sounded authoritative and mature again. Hit me, Rod giggled. Warm bottling, safe bottling, brave bottling, clever bottling. One and one is two, two and two is three, and two is three, and four is round, and square is square, and blue is nice, and green is pretty. It eased to the discomfort in Rod's mind. At first, he just rocked back and forth in the tune hugging himself as the maglev train sped through the vacuum at nearly impossible pace. Then he began humming along with it as its voices, the pleading, the questions, the screaming, began to recede. He opened his eyes. He was miles above the dark surface. Above him, the lights swallowed and flickered and bloomed and went dark. The train car was scarred, damaged, windows broken out, the support poles missing or knocked away. The seats slashed and stained with blood and worse. Bones were scattered, wrapped with rags of cloth that had long ago succumbed to slow decay. Only another ten minutes, Rod. Then you'll be refueling and strange matter reactor. That'll get the emergency system working, Samuel said, his voice audible above the strange, simple, soft singing, but not obscuring it. I'm holding on, Sam, Rod said. He could remember the weight of the pistol at his satchel. He fantasized about pressing the barrel of the pistol to his forehead and joining the specters. Once you get the power to the system, I can bring back the fusion reactors in the in-between layers. Run some more diagnostics, Samuel said. 
There's something really strange. What? Harrod asked, bored to take his mind off of everything than anything else. The mess and energy of this place. For example, gold conductors. There is more gold in this layer alone than in the entire soul system. Hell, in any cellar system, Samuel said. Creation engines and mash creation systems, Harrod said. The maglev was miles above the dark surface, but he could still see the ghostly flickers here and there in the streets. Groups of flickering specters and tubes only a few miles away from him. He could still hear the screaming. It takes an entire mass of a system to build a niven ring, Harrod, Samuel said. This is a layer after layer after layer, billions of miles apart, which increases the surface area of the next layer. He was quiet for a moment. Right now, as we speak, another layer is in the process of being built. Why? Harrod asked as the train swept through the grouping of flickering, transparent specters that were grappling with each other. I thought you said that there was basically infinite computing power coupled with infinite storage. Harrod, you're a particle physicist. You don't get it. There is infinite computing power coupled to infinite storage to manage and create nearly infinite procedurally generated persistent simulations of reality, complete with personality matrices and chaos events. Samuel said quietly, why? Harrod repeated as he watched two small children eat a third sweep by. Because of the nature of what it is, Samuel said softly, what each unique simulated reality actually is. What? Harrod asked, swallowing. The afterlife for each person who dies. They kept in a separate simulated realities to prevent data loss, with infinite copies of themselves spawned through infinite simulated realities each housing a person who has died that is then spawned in another reality. Samuel said, his voice changed, and he giggled. And I can see infinity here, Arod. I can touch where eternity and infinity make love to one another, while entropy watches in envy as matter and energy pours from between their legs to create reality. Stay with me, Sam, Arod said automatically. A breast of full life, Samuel said softly, his voice full of wonder, her thighs a whisper of abundance, her buttocks are rounded with potential. Sam! A rod snapped, and lo! I looked away from her form, for it was procedurally generated onto infinity, with a bosom with comfort beyond failed entropy, a suitor that had been spurned and gnaws upon its own liver in discontent. Sam said, there was laughter, then a sobbing. And Sam's voice came back. There's normally a dozen digital sentiences and a few tens of thousands of workers here to keep the supervisory digital sentience together, Harrod. We are alone, remain to tell thee, Harrod quoted. You're there, Samuel said as the train slowed and came to a stop. Close your eyes. The third maintenance team got this far before security was overwhelmed by the screaming ones. It's particularly bad. Harrod followed Sam's advice closing his eyes and following the blue line. A couple of times, he stumbled over objects that clattered away. Most of it was bones. Finally, he was there. The room was massive, the size of a city, full of machinery that sat in the dark. As a rod crossed through the room, heading for his goal, some of the machinery clacked and clattered through the ancient maintenance checks. Very few telltales were red, and those that had robots working on them. You're here! Samuel said. Arod opened his eyes, still hearing the song in the back of his mind. 
It was a reactor. A crude, ancient, strange matter reactor. And Roger stared. He'd never seen one in real life. Supposedly, they were theorized, but then replaced by a much more stable, if less energetic, thorium salt antimatter fusion reactors. It used heavy helium-3 atoms, strange matter helium-3. Do you have the schematic, Sam? Rod asked, feeling ground beneath his feet firm up for the first time since they committed themselves and used his hack job matrons to reach this place from the black box. Yeah, sorry, I found some puppies. They're confused and sad. I'm looking for their mother, Samuel said. His voice was full of anguish. How can we do, we do this, Harod? How can we bear this? Because we must, Harod answered, examining the schematic. He overlaid it on the wreckage. It looked like someone had tossed an implosion charge into the reactor. He could fix it in less than an hour with the creation engines and reactors he brought. Sam, I need mass, Rod said. The air in here isn't registering with the creation engines, not even the strange matter one. Mind you, he's waving. Call him Wally, Sam said. Rod looked behind him. A junk pile robot, damaged and battered, sat there. It waved, blinking the debris shutters on its cameras at him. All right, come here, Wally. Let's get started, Harrod said. Wally was eager to help, delivering matter tanks that fit easily into the nanoforges. The zero-point difference reactors gave off a soft glow, some of the energy escaping the fork's light neoprotons. That lit the workspace with a slight bit of comfort. Finally, Harrod stepped back, watching the reactor inject the heavy helium-3 strange matter into the reactor. It fired up with a hum. All right, I can get the orbital reactors fired up and access the alpha layer, Samuel said. Harrod sat down and put his arm around Wally, hugging him. The battered old robot leaned its head against Harrod's side and gave the digital equivalent of a sigh. Weird, the outer layers are smaller than the inner layers, Samuel mused. Okay, sensors and alpha layer are coming online. I can get a look at our star and... Uh, Samuel's voice trailed off. It's not a star, Samuel said. His voice crackling with stress. Harrod! Can't, 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 can't! Sam, what is it? Harrod yelled, looking up. Bang, bang, bing, bang, big bang, it failed here, it failed here! Samuel said. Bang and collapse, bang and collapse, and bang and collapse until the parents showed up. Sam! Get it together, Harrod yelled. There was a silence for a long moment. They... Built a Matroshka computing shell around the repeatedly failing Big Bang, Samuel said softly. I can see eternity inside out. The puffies, Sam, they need their mommy and daddy. Think of the puffies, Rod tried. Sam made a strange noise. I'm here, Rod, Samuel said. Michael pulled me back. He's online again. Can we get out of here, Sam, Rod said ignoring the shades that appeared, struggling against the other shades, until one shade threw a makeshift explosive into the reactor. I don't think this place likes us. End of chapter. Chapter 299. Infinity. Harad sat on the bench seat and recently cleared lift car. Wally had been nice enough to clean up all the bones and dump them uh, somewhere. Harad wasn't sure where. Now the little maintenance robot was next to his legs, backed up against the still comfortable seat, leaning his head against Harrod's legs. He looked down through the transparent floor and saw the layer that he was on receding away. 
Lights were coming on as night fell on the area that he'd been on. The fusion reactors, roughly 250,000 miles from the surface of either layer, where the magnetic tube track had ran in a strange pattern. The tube had twisted polarized section that gathered the energy from the fusion reactor and shaded the layer section of the approximation of night for 12 hours every 24. The sheer scope of the project still boggled Harrod's mind. Sam, you still there? Harrod asked. Barely, Sam said, his voice high and stressed. Hanging on, but I can feel my fingernails peeling the tighter I hold. What's wrong? Harrod asked. It's difficult to explain, Samuel said. I can barely comprehend it myself. And I'm inside of it, part of it. Have access to many parts of it. Although some are still beyond me, taking time to recognize my authority. I thought you had admin access, Harrod said. This was built a long time ago, Harrod, Sam said, giggling for a moment. It was built during the age of paranoia and pre-diaspora humanity and theorized pre-superluminal humanity. Some of these sections of the computing array are actually coordinated off according to national access codes. National, like in Bongostan and Pax Romanica, Harad asked, frowning. Try Great Britain or the different nations that banded together after the glossing. Or Pax Romanica, Zab said. There's some nasty stuff here. It's been like two knife fights already. Fight? With who? Harad asked. It seemed that he wasn't getting any closer to the layer spot. He looked out and could see, off in the distance, the huge magnetic tubes full of cascading lightning that were being used to move electricity from one layer to the next in the vacuum. Black ICEs, old ones, mean ones, stuff that's illegal now, Sam said. He gave a grunt, damn it, these ones can move through the same channels and date stores as me, and they're built for combat. Harad shook his head. Black ICE, like Sam, were describing that could be untethered, had been illegal since the Second Digital War, part of the arms reduction section of the treaties. How long will this take? Harad asked. Four hours, Sam said. You're above the so-called atmosphere now, so it's speeding up. You don't want to know how fast. The system will pass you to the next station as the layer above and below rotate opposite each other. That's the station I want you to reach. Harad shook his head. I'm going to defrag and do a kernel recompile, he said. Can you monitor my dreams? Yeah, it's pretty simple, Sam said. Harad closed his eyes. Look, mommy, a glitter man, a little boy said. He opened his eyes, blinking in the sunlight and looked. A little puppy and child stood in front of him, sucking on his thumb and staring with wide, curious eyes. She was covered in puffy, soft, curly brown fur had a snub nose, whiskers, and looked for all the world like a teddy bear come to life. Sweetie, you woke him up, the puppy and female, twice the little puppy's size, said, moving up, taking her child's hand. She looked at a rod and put a paw on her child's ears. Have you been dead long? she asked, her eyes filling the unshed tears. I'm dreaming, a rod said, looking around and saw that he was in the middle of a sunny and warm park. Children were playing while parents held on to one another, looking around in shock. I'm sorry, the Bavian female said, shaking her head. If you are here, you are dead. We're all waiting for our turn into heaven. Oh, Rod said. You aren't the first digital sentience I've seen, the woman said. 
She held out a hand. This place is new and much nicer than where we were. Where were you? Harad asked, letting the puppy and female help him to his feet. No sleep, but awake, dreaming but not, aware that there were others nearby, but all alone. You couldn't really think. It was like your brain was filled with a soft stuffing, the puppy had said. She smiled shyly. I had surgery once to fix my leg. It was like right as the anesthetic beams put you under. It just went on and on. No, I'm sorry, Harrod said. The little puppy let go of her mother's hand and took her rods. Harrod could feel the soft fur, the gripping pads on the palms and the warmth of her presence. Your death must have been painful or frightening if you don't remember it, the puppy had said. Do you know where you are? Harrod asked. She nodded. Yes, the sole uninterrupted disaster storage system. At least, that's what I was told when I got the implant. How did you die? Harrod asked cringing inside at the possibility of an answer. She shrugged. I remember seeing a large spaceship enter the atmosphere. There was a bright flash, and I found myself here. I remember being scared and grabbing Shanley close. I'm Shanley, the puffy said proudly. Yes, you are, Harrod said softly. His mind was whirling at the thought of the puffy talking to him. They were extinct had gone extinct when the mantid had attacked their home system and the last remnant, consumed by grief, had been the first to land on Antil. Do you want to watch me dance? The little puffy gently asked. Sure, Harrod said. The puffy let go and began to wave her arms around, jumping around, dancing like most small children do. I like the park better, the puffy said again. She waved at a Trinidad matron who was puffing on a power smoker who waved back. There's so many of us waiting. What if you don't like the park? Harad asked. There are other places. I know that they are. I know I can go and see them. I took Shani to see a storm on the rocky beach before we found you sleeping, she said. It was sudden. It was all grey and almost, but not really, asleep. Then I knew there were plenty of places to go and see, and I knew Shanley was in the children's play place. Sam! Sam did this. Harrod thought to himself. He was looking right at the group of Stemmel, small lizard people who had been destroyed by the Wen Terran in the opening phases of the Terran Wem Terran War when it happened. The light shined on him and they slowly lifted up. The whole family unit of a male, three females, and a small group of children. They lifted up into the air and vanished into the clouds while the child waved at everyone. He's still processing all of these people. Rod realized. He moved over and sat on a bench that faced a fountain, staring at the water. You're not alone here, the voice said. Harrod jumped and looked up, seeing a human with dark brown skin, dark curly hair, and brown eyes looking down at him. You aren't the only digital sentient here. Harrod just swallowed. Enough. Rough death, the human asked, moving over and sitting down next to Harrod. I've just had quite a few shocks, Harrod admitted. Yeah, that can happen, he said, and he suddenly laughed. A harsh, barking sound. My last death I'm going to appeal because that was just plain stupid. Harrod frowned. Appeal? The human nodded. Yeah, I'd already died five times before, but the sixth one, the limit, was just a random freak chance and not through my own negligence or death-seeking. 
and Ron shook his head. I didn't know there was a regrowth limit. The human nodded. Yeah, you get six ones for negligence or death sinking, not counting military regrowths. Other than that, you're covered. What happened? Harrod asked. The man laughed and waved at Madame. It's funny. I was a mime. Good one, too. The man smiled and then put on his open hands against the air like he was pressing on a wall while making a face. He laughed and looked at Harrod, putting his hands back at his lap. I was acting like I was pouring an invisible rope in front of the Eiffel Tower, which is the dream of every good mime. A couple thousand feet above me, two cargo lifters slammed into each other, and one dropped a piece of cargo. The man leaned toward Harrod. So there I am, putting on an invisible rope, and a, uh, I should you not, a full-blown complete cathedral pipe organ falls from the sky and crushes me, killing me instantly. Worse yet, the crowd all clapped and dropped credit chips on the ground around me, talking about how realistic it looked. Harrod just stared. Then, and there he is, the real kicker. The man started to laugh harder. The mountain attack, boom, gone. So, uh, not my fault. Harrod just stared. Funny, huh? The man said. He looked up. Whoops, uh, that's my number. Good luck, dude. The man started rising, and he suddenly started to pretend that he was putting on an invisible rope to put him into the sky. Harrod just shook his head, and he got up and wandered around. Many people wanted to talk to him, tell him about their last moments, ask what the world was like. Did people remember them? Did the mantids win the war? Had he seen different people? There was a beeping, had he jerked as he sat up. He was still in the love car, which was nudging against the retainers as it docked. He looked down at Wally looking up, blinking his shutters over his knees. Sorry, Herod, Sam's voice said in his ear. I meant to put you in a dream. Accidentally put you in the processing queue. It's all right, Harrod said. He felt refreshed, no longer like he was going to start screaming at any second. There was a very confused Trinidad in your dream, by the way, Sam laughed. He hitched a sob in the middle for a second. I bumped him to the front of the queue. It was the least I could do. How did you confuse me for a Trinidad? Harrod asked, standing up as the lift car came to a final stop. It was a Trinidad digital intelligence, Sam said. Harrod paused, his hand reaching for the door. A what? Adrianidad digital intelligence. Yeah, Adrianidad created digital sentience made in their own image, Sav said. What didn't you understand? They don't make those, they go omnicidal, Harrod said. He wasn't. He was a Moomoo overwatch on Smoky Cone before he transferred to Terrasol to oversee a Moomoo purchase. He got killed in the Mantid attack, Samuel said. Said there was a couple hundred of them in here. Harrod just shook his head. More lost tech. Harrod followed the blue line across the station. Wally, no, he said, when he saw the little robot was trying to clean up all the bones and rags. The robot looked at him, blinked, and then dumped the bones on the ground. Okay, Team 3 made it almost to where you're going to be before getting overwhelmed, Samuel said. There's going to be damage you'll need to repair when you get there. Which layer is this? Harrod asked. Sam made an odd noise. That's, um, hard to describe. It's Bangwood from where you were on, but it's Layer 9, aka Layer Iota. Even though, in a strange way, it's closer to the bang, but smaller than the ones closer to the bag. It's hard to explain. You know what? 
Never mind. Just tell me where I need to go. Harrod's voice trailed off as the maglev train smoothly pulled out, going at a sharp upward angle like a roller coaster. A Gen 2 Star Trap, which moved the maglev train above any atmosphere to reach extremely high speeds of nearly a hundred miles a second at top speed. He looked down and was startled at how slowly the ground seemed to pass. Vast buildings, what could only be massive factory complexes. Huge, empty fields that Harrod had a feeling were the vast roofs of complex systems. Where are we? Harrod asked. Not sure. Classified region, Samuel said. There's even twenty high-end, self-modifying, evolving black ICE guarding the computer access for the region. And I'm not too interested in fighting with what looks to be an ancient Hamburger Kingdom electronic warfare combat system. Don't blame you, Harrod mumbled. Like many of the other Terran historical governments, the Hamburger Kingdom made their own weapon systems rather than pulling from the Confederate armories like everyone else. Unlike everyone else, they accomplished this by piling up massive piles of physical wealth and burning it while stalls of people walked in a circle around the fire, chanting strange slogans and adding more wealth as needed, until a new military equipment was revealed in the ashes. Say what you want, they've got the meanest equipment out there. They rival space walls in sheer firepower. Harrod thought to himself as the tram slowly moved over the section covered by clouds. He glanced down and saw what looked like a massive squares on the ground. He squinted his eyes, magnifying what he was seeing, until he realized that he was looking at a huge military formation of massive, bulky cyborgs. Sam, where am I looking? What's that? There's millions of them. Rod said. Let me check, Sam said. Oh, oh man, stop looking at them. Don't look at them. Rod looked away, bringing his vision back to North and smiling at Wadi, who sleepily waved at him. What are they? Something terrible, Sam said softly. You think our parents are insane now? They used to be worse. What are they? Rod repeated. Are they going to be a problem? No, that won't be a problem. They're not for this universe or any other yet, Sam said. Our parents were paranoid. That's the Entropic Legion. The file hit and Harrod grunted like he'd been punched in the gut. He scanned the file and whistled. Cyborgs designed to enter the universe after entropy had finished and the universe had died and been reborn. To see the universe was habitable and, if necessary, destroy anyone who threatened the recently returned mankind. The weapons were esoteric, and several times Harrod wanted to argue with the file that reality didn't work that way. Only our parents would make plans and prepare to invade a universe that doesn't exist yet, Harrod thought to himself, shaking his head to delete the file. The maglev switched tracks and began to slow down moving through a slow spiral arc that funneled down to the surface again. Harrod sighed and waited, bracing himself for what was to come. Psychic residue was everywhere, recording the last moments or highly stressful situations all over the massive complex. When he stepped off the maglev, he closed his eyes for a second. Humans and Trianodad were flicking into existence and vanishing, all made up of translucent white energy. He saw a Trianidad warrior spear a human female through the stomach, but the human female just laughed, blood running down her chin, broke off the Trianidad blade arm at the elbow joint, yanked it from her stomach, 
and shoved it through the open mouth before using it to twist off its head. They both flickered and vanished as the rod drew near, following the blue line of his vision. The entire place was eerily silent. Just a low hum of machinery working at impossible distance and a faint whispering that could be heard. He followed the line through the door, down the hallways, and into the elevator. He closed his eyes during the ride, the specters of half a dozen humans fighting to the death in the elevator repeating over and over. When the doors opened, he followed the blue line until it suddenly stopped. All right, this is what's called a madness-secured area, Harod, Sam said. That sounds ominous, Harod said. Wally beeped nervously. I'll have to give you directions. There's no data link, but I can still talk to you on the security frequency. Gird yourself, Sam said. The door opened to reveal an empty room with pale squares and rectangles on yellowish carpet. The walls were a pale yellow with flickering fluorescent lights in the ceiling. There was one or two doorways in each wall, without doors, that led to rooms much like the one that he was staring at, only the pale spots on the carpet were different. Sam gave him directions as he moved through the rooms, going through the door seemingly at random, each of the rooms nearly identical, just different enough to slowly start to confuse him. It was hushed. Not even his own footsteps made noise. Not even Wally's treads. There, in the corner. Go over there, Sam said suddenly. Forward right corner. It's just a corner, Rod said, feeling tired. His internal chrono was clinched, just replaying the same 15 seconds over and over. Still, he moved over to the corner. Push against it firmly and step through it, Sam ordered. Rod pushed. Wally scooted up between his legs and helped. There was a flash as he stumbled out into a hallway. What was the point of that? Harod asked. Security feature. It's endless. According to my senses, you only wandered in a circle in a single room. I had to access the security map to guide you through, Sam said. There's still screaming ones roaming those rooms, never finding anyone else. Adonally searching. Harod shivered. The room led to a hallway where the corners fell slightly off. Not quite 90 degrees, but subtly off. The room tilted a degree or two one way, then slowly tilted the other. The rows of tiles weren't quite true. Some rows slightly smaller than the other. Others slightly larger. Some of them with the pattern subtly off. Arad closed his eyes and followed the blue line while Wally gave nervous beeps. It didn't stop the growing whispers. Harad, Sam suddenly said. Yes, Harad giggled. Sam had talked to him several times, but every time he had suddenly started screaming or sobbing or asking for riddles. It's me, Harad. It's really me. You're gonna want to run, Sam said. Why? Harad asked, pausing with his hand on the push bar of the door. Because this is where the team three went down. They're dead. They didn't die, Sam said softly. They used some kind of ugly tech, some kind of lost tech. And they're still there, and they're still angry. They're still fighting the screaming ones they encountered. All right, Harad said. Once you pass this, you'll be boarding a train to take you through to the Singer Corporation Mars Storage Yards, Samuel said. Wait, the Singer's in the darkness. This is where they get the mass to create entire star systems for, Harad said. Um, 
Maybe. I thought the singers in the darkness was a net legend, Sam said. No, they're real, Harad said. He shivered. Rami are on out. Anything that was a rumor we consider real. All right. Do you think there's really any singers there? Sam asked. I hope not, Harad said. I really hope not. Tell me when you're ready. I'll release the maglocks on the door, Sam said. Harad looked down and smiled at Wally. When the door opens, we'll run at full speed. Okay, little guy. Wally beeped and held up a thumb in his little hand. Harad tensed. Ready! The maglock clacked and the door flew open. Harad started running, ignoring what he saw around him. Their bodies, horribly torn apart. Some decayed, but some not. In rings of different levels of decay. In the middle of each set of concentric rings were Terran humans. All of whom were savaged. He saw three with their guts spilled out onto the floor, even as they struggled with Terrans who were shrieking at the top of their lungs and attacking the armored figures. Harod was the particle physicist, one of the best in the known universe. He could recognize strange matter particles by the disturbance of the movement left. He could identify what particle the tachyon had come from, recognize the difference between Mercury and Mars war steel, and could track the recent movements of water molecule based on the marks left on the quarks that made it up. He recognized the golden fire rippling in the rings around the fighting Terrans, recognized the energy patterns flowing from them. Chronotrons, a particle so dangerous to mess with, it was forbidden with the harshest penalties that the Confederacy could come up with. Half-particle waveform, it both absorbed energy and released it in a quasi-mathematical state that supposedly could only be measured, not captured, or preserved, or reduced to actual particles. Yet the fields were awash with them. The Terrans were inside concentric temporal stabilization fields, time moving slower inside each one until it almost stopped compared to the outside world. His mind ran the computations, even as he swerved around the fiery rings. 619 years, 4 months, 6 days, 16 hours, 42 minutes, 19.85 seconds on Herod's side, for every minute that went by in the center of the field. The Terrans had been fighting for less than 15 minutes, and 8,000 years had gone by. All of them were in the Third Republic of Alliant Planet's military uniforms. The combined military forces uniforms, not the heavy power armor they later used. Herod sprinted, keeping an eye on the edges of the fields. The last thing he wanted was the leading edge of the laser touch the outer ring, go superluminal, and blow him to pieces. The psychic residue of nearly 10,000 years of combat beat him like a physical hammer, wielded by an angry god. He wove around the last four, who were all back to back, pressed up against each other, their weapons still frozen in mid-trigger pull. The blaze of beams leaving their barrels, the screaming one still howling in eternal maddened screams. He hit the far door, held it open long enough for Wally to get through, and went down on his knees. He held himself, shuddering, sobbing, while Wally patted him on the back for a long moment. Sam, he asked. Yes, Sam sounded distant, detached. How did they get here? Herod asked, hugging Wally closed. Just getting here seems to be drove them mad. 
The same way we did, Sam said. He was quiet for a moment. Well, not quite. We hijacked a signal and used it. They used the original equipment. I just piggybacked onto the signal and inserted us into it. What equipment? How did we get here? That wasn't a jump gate like I thought, or a dimensional rip portal, or a dimensional phone breach. How did we get here? Herod asked. There was a long silence for a moment. If I told you, you wouldn't have done it, Sam admitted. They used it too, Herod asked. Yes. What was it? Herod asked. Sam was silent again for a long moment. We scraped between dead space and else space. Herod closed his eyes and hugged himself as Sam kept talking. Type 1 match trots, Sam admitted. End of chapter. Chapter 300. A man comes to town. The armor beeped as it opened and he stepped out of it. He left it open, even though he knew he should close it back up. As he moved to a large rock at the edge of the crack and faded asphalt. Daxon sat down on the moss-covered rock after making sure it wasn't the kind of moss that secreted enzymes that ate away the clothes and flesh. Fido moved up to him, and he leaned over to scratch between the warboy's ears as he stared off at what was in front of him. A massive wall-steel door set into a mountain, surrounded by ferrocrete. No markings, no warnings. At least none that had survived the march of time, as it had moved forward and rewound over and over. A dark place, Daxon, dark place, Fido said. I know, boy, Daxon said, staring at the massive door. He knew it was nearly fifty feet thick. It weighed tons, with internal graviton generators to increase its relative mass, with temporal and phasic interlocks to make it virtually impervious to attack. Even the mountain itself would survive the sun going supernova. Daxon could feel the watcher, that niggling, nagging feeling that left a prickling between the shoulder blades, that made his knuckles itch, that made his teeth grit. Someone watching him with ill intent. I know you're there, Daxon said, picking up a pebble. There was silence as he flicked the pebble away, so it bounced off the black door and clattered across the asphalt. He looked up at the moon, where it was as it always was, staring down as uncaring, all-seeing eye. Bad place, Daxon. I know, boy, Daxon said, scratching between Fido's ears. He reached down, picked up a pebble, and rolled it between his fingers. It was the same pebble. He might as well come out, Daxon said. He flicked the pebble and watched as it bounced away again, vanishing into the blood-sucking, flesh-eating, sap-possessing blackberry bush. There was a whirring of actuators and the clicking of servos as the massive figure pushed away a branch that was trying to rub deadly pollen against the figure's shoulders. It clanked into the middle of the asphalt and stood there, staring at Daxon. He noticed they had made sure they moved between Daxon and his armor. The armor was large, nearly ten feet tall, all black, sleek-looking, with a skull helmet covered in spikes. The shoulders had spikes, the elbows and knees were spiked, and the wicked-looking rotary autocannon held in its hands was just as glossy as black as the armor. You look like a fool, Daxon said, shaking his head. 
Do you really think that I'm intimidated by your armor? The figure just stood there, looking as if it was breathing, steam leaking from between its teeth. I know it's you, Marty, Daxon said, picking up a pebble and rolling it between his fingers. He could feel it start to tingle, potential energy from the last two flicks building up in it. He flicked it again, whirring it by the figure so that it bounced off the black wall steel door, clattering against the asphalt and vanishing into the bushes. Don't call me that, the figure growled from inside the armor. It's your name, Marty, Daxon said. He went down and picked up the pebble again. I am Armored Matthias, the figure growled. You sound like you need a cough drop or a throat scraping, Daxon said, flicking the pebble away again. You lost the right to call yourself that, Marty. You do not have the right to judge me, Daxon, the unclean, the figure said. His voice still sounded like rocks in a tumbler. Still with the unclean, but, huh, Daxon said. You are a criminal scum in the Habs, and scum never changes, the figure said. Our father believed different, Marty, Daxon said, picking up the pebble again. It was a tingling now, and when he glanced down, he saw it was starting to glimmer slightly. He was too forgiving, the figure said. He forgave you, even as you struck him down, Daxon said, flicking the pebble away. I had to, the figure roared out, taking a single step forward. This world, this sinful, filthy world, was corrupting every moment he spent in it. Still the judge, I see, Daxon said, reaching down and picking up the pebble again. Judge Marty, savior of Delta City. I saved it from you, the figure snapped. Behind him, the blueberry bush was extending our tendrils in the direction the pebble kept coming from, looking for whatever kept disturbing it in the hopes of the bounty of protein. Right until the mantid blew it to a bad memory, Daxon sneered. He flicked the pebble away and it bounced off the door, bouncing across the asphalt and disappeared into the blackberry bush. You saved it. Nicely done. Do not mock me, the figure yelled. Judge Marty, Daxon sneered, hid in the Lawson command vehicle while me and my gang chopped up your men for three weeks straight before a lucky shot put me on my back. Six weeks later, my hab was overrun by a jungle. And four million people died. You were a criminal, the skull-faced armored figure yelled. I fed everyone in the hab, something you couldn't seem to do. Kept them safe, provided medical supplies, Daxon laughed. Even got off from the rest of Delta City by the MLK Green Zone. I provided for them, kept the jungle out. You sold drugs, ran prostitution rings, committed murders. Marty growled. You escaped judgment being sent to Aspen. You should have been summarily executed. Sold drugs to Skyraker wage slaves. Ran joy boys and con girls to street corp cube wages. Killed anyone who got in my way. Daxon admitted, shrugging as he flicked the pebble away again. Hijacked food shipments, drug and medical shipments. Robbed power stations. Kidnapped corpies for ransom. Daxon looked up and grinned a savage tooth grin. I did it all, 
You're right. I did, Daxon admitted. You are scum who thinks he escaped the law, the figure snapped. You're going to lay down the law, Marty. You're going to bring me to justice in the name of a system that the Mantid blew to hell 8,000 years ago, Daxon asked. Picked up the peplican. Baby friend computer will finally love you, Marty. The big armored suit stepped forward in a single step, the asphalt cracking beneath his feet. Behind him, the damaged tarmac from the other footprints slowly reformed to cracked and faded asphalt. You've had this coming for a long time, Daxeter, the armored figure said, reaching down to its waist and wrapping one armored hand around a large, heavy pistol. All your crimes, I sentence you to death. Daxon snapped the pep directly at the figure. It streaked forward, hitting the armored hand and exploding in a bright flash as the built-up potential energy was liberated. The figure roared, pulling back its hands, its fingers twisted and one missing. I do stay here, Daxon roared out as he lunged to his feet. Bido sat back down, retracting the heavy minigun back into his armored core. Daxon ducked underneath the wild swing of one massive fist, stepping one step past the figure as it started to turn. Before the armored figure could react, Daxon slammed his heel into the back of the knee, which was already engaged in a bending slightly to allow for the figure to turn smoothly. With a loud crack, the actuator gave out and the electroplate of polymer muscles snapped off at the anchors. The figure went down to one knee, barely managing to catch itself. All those laws, sick, and you are never a street judge beyond your rookie years, Daxon growled, reaching between the back of the helmet and the upraised collar. Marty tried to get back and grab, but Daxon stepped forward and yanked him, dropping him by his face. You know why I lured you here, you gibbering lobotomy patient, Daxon asked kneeling down and reaching under the lip of the collar to push his fingers into the seal attached to the neck on the base of the helmet. Get off me, unclean one, the figure yelled. Do you remember my name, Marty? Daxon asked. Lighting began flowing down his arm, crackling across his shoulders down his spine. I didn't use a gun to fight, remember, Marty? Daxon asked. He pushed his fingers further into the seam as the lightning down his arm thickened. Of course you didn't. You were busy getting medals from OCP and the weakening mayor of Delta City, who left my people to rot. The armor's leggings kicked twice as the psychic electricity hit the armor's computer systems and fried them out. Say my name, Marty, Daxon snarled, clenching his fingers, beginning to pull the helmet away. Get off me, the armored figure roared out, the voice crackling and full of static. Say my name, Matthias, Daxon snarled. The seal on the sides of the helmet puffed up in smoke and the helmet's rear section was pulled away by Daxon's hand. The armor went limp. That's 600 pounds of the Third Republic Combined Military Forces Heavy Assault Armor, Daxon said shifting position so that he could get his hands underneath the side. He heaved the armor and rolled it over, the mask coming off. Matthias's face was pale, his eyes chrome, his head bald, his lips thin and bloodless, his teeth black 
had rotted. Say my name, Matthias, Daxon snarled, slowly standing up. Lightning moved up and down his arm, across his shoulders and up and down his spine. Say it, traitor! Enraged, Philip, Matthias said. Please don't kill me, Philip. Please. Daxon stood over the fallen man, staring down at him with eyes that were cold. Do you know why I lured you here? Why? The fallen man asked, licking his dry lips with his raspy dry tongue. Because the spot is special. This spot, right here, Daxon said, staring down. Before the gates of Crying Anne, the mouth of the underworld. Do you really not recognize this place? Marty shook his head. No, Daxon, I don't. It is where they took us to make us immortals after you betrayed us, Daxon snarled. You wouldn't recognize it. The lightning roared down Daxon's arms, leapt from his fists and wreathed the fallen man's head. Marty screamed once, briefly, before he went silent. The lightning stopped as Daxon stared down at the smoking, burnt skull that was only human part outside of the black armor. After a moment, he moved over to his armor, climbing back in and activating the systems. Fido trotted up, sitting down and waiting. He reached down and picked up the dead man, holding him in his arms. He moved up to the great black door. One for entry, bringing subject 13 for initial process, Daxon said. The door shuddered as the mag locks released, and the air shivered as the door slowly began to open. Men of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed, and if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one, and until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.